This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 452, a conversation with Bill Willingham. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 452 is our conversation with Bill Willingham. It's a long one today, so you better strap in for over two and a half hours of my conversation with Bill Willingham. Um, I would also direct you uh, to our recent episode uh, from about, I guess, a month or so ago. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's been that long, but apparently it has been. Uh, episode 440, uh, which was uh, posted on January 8th, 2017, which is our conversation with Mark Buckingham. Um, so today we're talking with Bill Wellingham, who is most well-known these days for being the creator of the Fables uh, comic book series as well as related spinoffs. Uh, he was the writer of that series, and his co-creator on most of the Fables books was Mark Buckingham. So uh, we he mentions in the course of our conversation here uh, that episode. So if you want to listen to that episode as well before we come back to here. Uh, that's episode 440. Um, we have a lot of material in today's episode. Um, we talk a lot about um, Bill's approach to writing, how he writes characters, his early days. Uh, I don't even think we get into Fables till I think maybe a past hour and a half mark. Um, so if you, if you came for Fables, you may have to wait a little while, but it's really interesting stuff. Bill, t- you know, kind of walks us through how he approaches characters. Uh, again, his kind of story of you know the, where he ended up in comics and how he kind of navigated it's actually really interesting. Uh, the books he worked on, uh, some of the personalities he had. Uh, interactions with is really interesting stuff so i think you're really going to enjoy this episode um so thank you for joining us for this episode uh upcoming episodes in the next couple months we should be having another conversation with howard mackey um we have to reschedule that but that should be sometime down the line we're hoping to get eric larson back on the show as well because he was uh, on the show i think in december uh we're gonna have a conversation with paul galacy coming up um so a lot of good stuff anyways i also wanted to before we get into the episode uh thank some people uh that were name checked for the most part in the episode but not everyone was uh, i got some great questions from the marvel masterworks forum which is often the case uh when i have uh, an upcoming interview subject that people th- throw in some questions and the great questions were great here because uh actually when i first started talking to bill i was like you know what and i'm sure you get a ton of people asking about fables we're going to talk about a lot of other stuff too uh and he was like okay great let's do it um so i want to thank some of the listeners who submitted questions that really help flush out that part of the episode uh so i want to thank listener uh, faust 33 uh, visual fiction, fiction um, INTP, uh, Hyperthor, uh, Delotemio, um, well, uh, Bomaya, uh, Jester59388, uh, and I think um, that's it. Uh, I had a lot of questions from a few of those individuals, and for the most part, we got to knock most of them out. Or um, he mentioned something that more or less answered the question, so I didn't end up asking it. But thank you for submitting questions anyway. Uh, I'm sure with upcoming uh, interview subjects, I will be asking for many more um, ideas and questions. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Uh, if you ever want to email me, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. And now, Without further ado, after listening to me for three minutes, let's talk to Bill Willingham for the next two and a half hours. Enjoy. Bill, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you very much. And uh, and I feel very welcome. I, I apologize in advance. Uh, it's a Monday. I don't know how much shenanigans I can get up to, <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Okay, excellent. Well, let, let's go way back then to, to, to start. Um, what what first kind of cultivated an interest in comics? In comics? Well, boy, uh, first 
influences will will have to go all the way back to uh, Germany. Um, uh, when my dad was stationed there, and and so we were there, we were living in Germany. Uh, and uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, we were stationed there during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, in which case, like if if the blockade and all that kind of stuff went went wonky in Cuba, uh, the very first uh, major battle once we're at war with the Soviet Union uh, takes place in Germany. Um, I did not know that then. I was uh, three years old to five years old. Uh, we were stationed there for three years. Uh, um, and uh, completely unaware of politics, and I'm just—I just inserted all that in, and that's got nothing whatsoever to do with my anecdote. Um, <laughs> what does have something to do with it is that um, back then uh, we lived in these uh, uh, barracks, uh, off-post family barracks kind of things that looked like housing projects. Uh, so we lived very close to each other, and it was uh, uh, often the case where. Um, and we had comic books uh, all over the place. I'm not sure where they came from. Uh, in hindsight, I guess they must have come from the, the uh, uh, PX system, which has their Stars and Stripes bookstores. But, uh, but I don't know. It's just, as a kid, comic books just sort of showed up. They were there. Um, and what we would do is uh, we would uh, just read them and then get rid of them by putting them in our wagon, whatever, and it's going around to all the other uh, uh, apartments, uh, quarters where other kids live and, and just trade. And the standard was, uh, you know, one single-sized comic for one single-sized comic and two single-sized comics for one of those uh, uh, double-sized ones. And that's it. The only consideration was, was how big it is and uh, have we read it before. Um <laughs> That's my earliest uh, memories of comic books, uh, and I think it was just cultural. Uh, this was in 1962, you know, 61, thereabouts, um, and they were ubiquitous in, in our, uh, our culture. So I grew up with them. I could not read then, or not very well. I mean, I guess they were starting to teach us then. Uh, but I had about six million older sisters. Um, so I grew up having comics read to me uh, by older sisters. Since we did not have a television uh, with us there, uh, it was surprisingly easy uh, to uh, force one of the older sisters into doing this because what else is there to do? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I grew up, uh, my first literature was comics, uh, having comics read to me. Uh, trading, it was my first experience with uh, uh, with any kind of uh, economic system, uh, bartering in this case, or, uh, uh, yeah, bartering. Uh, uh, but we'd do it. Um, and the thing is, anytime you saw a kid out in front of the uh, uh, the housing complex uh, pulling a wagon full of comics, it's, uh, it's like the ice cream man coming by. Uh, you knew. <laughs> He's going around trading comics. And you would gather up your, your pile... Um, and this was, you know, this was not a beloved, uh, I've had these comics forever pile because they were brand new the, the last time you traded, 
uh, take them down, and uh, you'd go through each other's and 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 work out how big your stack is based entirely on have we read this before. Uh, it was a uh, a really interesting uh, child uh, based child moving economy uh, subculture that existed in the. Uh, the military barracks there. Um, that was my first influence on comics. Uh, they were part of the environment growing up. Uh, the the desire to do them uh, came along when I started trying to draw and, and found out that, that I had some kind of knack for it. Uh, it was just obvious that what I wanted to draw was, was in the comics that I had. Did I answer your question? Yeah, absolutely you did. Um, okay, good. <laughs> Actually, uh, I'm, I'm going to, as we kind of move chronologically, I have some uh, listener questions that came in uh, in advance of this uh, of this conversation that I'll kind of pepper in. So our sure. first, first uh, listener question was, uh, do, do you still find time to draw and practice? Do I still find time to draw and, and practice? Well, any, uh, we'll take this question in, in parts. Any drawing whatsoever is practice. I mean, uh, uh, I know the old joke uh, about uh, medical professions, like they, they call their profession a practice, and, and, and you want to say, you know, I, I, I want a doctor who isn't practicing so much as, you know, knows how to do it. But, <laughs> right, any, anything you do draw feeds that practicing beast, and hopefully always getting better. Uh, and the answer is yes, I do find time still to draw. You won't see much of it. Uh, a lot of it I, I draw for myself. Recently, I've been uh, I've been coaxed um, uh, by example uh, by Adam Hughes, who every once in a while posts his his art uh, on Twitter. So I've I've been coaxed by that to to open up my sketchbooks and, and post some of it. Uh, and uh, I don't know. We got into about a, a tenth of my sketchbooks before I got embarrassed by the whole thing. <laughs> uh, because it's it, it seemed very much like look at me, look at me. This this is me. You know, pay attention to me. Uh, I don't know. So uh, the answer is yes. I do draw. I do try and keep my hand in um, because of the uh, just the the physical manifestation of drawing comics takes so much, so much time, uh, so much effort. Uh, it's unlikely that you'll see me. Uh, draw a regular series again only because if I did uh, that would be what I did period I would not be able to write other books I would not be able to uh, write the novels that I'm you know currently infatuated with etc etc so uh, so yes uh, don't look for things too often though Okay. Um, uh, one last question from the same person was, uh, who are the biggest influences on your art? Who is this nosy Parker asking all these questions? Uh, he goes by the name Faust33. And he's gonna oh, have a oh, I hate that guy. <laughs> um, good old Faust33. It's like, yeah, he was like, you know, the 33rd person to sell his soul to the devil, or it took him 33 tries to do it before the, you know, <laughs> you know the devil finally finally reached a uh, bargain. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? Who were, who were the influences? On your art, yeah. Uh, on art? Oh, just, just about 
everybody I see. I mean, uh, and I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it really is the case. I mean, anytime, uh, if you draw, you would understand this. Anytime you look at someone else's art, uh, as much as there's a, an appreciation of it on its own merits, there's that inevitable wane. Uh, I wish I could draw like this. I'm so glad I don't draw like this. Uh, <laughs> that's a little rare because uh, the, the the people that uh, uh, that can outshine me art-wise uh, are are many, and the people that can't are few and far between. But but there is that that measuring thing, and to to that extent, uh, everyone uh, influences either as a plus or minus sign. Um, and then the other way it works is uh, sometimes you you see a, a drawing from a, an artist uh, who has figured out something that you've been struggling with, hmm. uh, and and suddenly you're just able to see it. Find it's like, oh, well, that's how you do a chin like that, or that's that that's how you do that kind of bended knee, or, or whatever, whatever they've whatever problem they've solved, and it gives you a little. Uh, uh, a push into into uh, being able to figure it out now for yourself. Um, that said, I mean early on, uh, it was it would be, have been easier to answer this. I mean, I wanted to grow up at first and be Neil Adams uh, because he revolutionized comics when he came along. Um, I uh, I would have gladly settled uh, for being uh, uh, Michael Golden for a while. Um, and, and then there was a long period in which I cursed myself for not being uh, Barry Windsor Smith before Barry Windsor Smith came along, hmm. which would have been difficult because he came along when I was a wee child, so I would have had to uh, <laughs> had to have gotten a, a really, really good uh, savant-esque head start on him if that was the case. Um, nowadays, it's it's hard to, uh, to differentiate anyone. I mean... Uh, uh, Living surrounded by artists, and if you and if you even just write, uh, I mean, I've, I've drawn comics, but even if you only write comics uh, in this field for any length of time, you're going to live your life surrounded by great artists, uh, just because the, they are the people uh, you most uh, have to work with. I mean, more than editors and and letterers and anything like this is is the the artists you work with make or break your career. Uh, and if you're at all paying attention, which hopefully we are, uh, every one of them has some kind of uh, uh, influence on your aesthetic appreciation and understanding of, of, of how that important side of, of comic storytelling works. Uh, so they all do. Um, but they also bring in, uh, I mean, Adam Hughes visits here a lot. He's constantly calling my attention to other new artists he's discovered, or more likely old artists. Uh, Steve Rude took me by the hand, uh, figuratively, and uh, brought me back to old magazine illustrations and the, and the greats uh, uh, in the kind of Andrew Loomis school that, uh, that I lived with as a kid because those were the magazines being published, but I didn't understand them or, or even care. Uh, but now you look back at one of those just incredible 
uh, old cigarette ads and just see how, how marvelous the art was. So, uh, everyone, I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't give you a, a better <laughs> answer there, Faust. That's okay. Well, That's he, your name. He, he, has a, uh, he did have another follow-up, which was kind of the same question, but with regards to writing, who are some of your biggest influences on your writing? Uh, it's, a, it's a similar uh, uh, answer, which is uh, anyone who does it well uh, influences it for the, to the, okay, I need to try better, I need to work harder. Uh, anyone who doesn't do it well influences the, well, at least at least I'm not this bad, but I still do need to try harder so that I never get to be this bad. Uh, but that, I think that's a general rule for everyone, anyone. Um, as far as a breakthrough in writing, uh, one of... Uh, one of the problems, the big problems I had is uh, for 30 plus years now, I've been writing comics uh, in one form or another, and I've kind of figured out how to do it. And I don't mean, I don't mean that uh, you. It's always a struggle to uh, create a good story that people are going to be interested in, and that never goes away. But the, the sheer mechanics of how to construct a page and, and, and how much dialogue can go in a given page and all that kind of stuff and how to, to pace a story dependent on the artist who's really carrying the bulk of, of it. Uh, you know, the artist carries all the exposition and things like that. Anyway, I figured that out. And so I started uh, about 10 years ago in a big way trying to move into or move back into uh, prose writing, uh, and in prose writing, it's it's so difficult, especially if you've been uh, trained on writing comics, because suddenly you don't have an artist to carry your exposition. You have mm. to learn to write it. Mm. Uh, you might be great guns with dialogue because that's all you've done for thirty years, but uh, uh, but in prose writing, you have to be able to switch effortlessly from uh, from dialogue to exposition. Uh, in such a way to where uh, the reader uh, doesn't hit these these uh, obvious road bumps each time and realize, oh, we're in a, a different kind of writing here. Um, and I was I struggled with it, uh, and I suffered a lot of uh, uh, writer's block because of it. Now, writer's block being just an excuse for I don't know what I'm doing or I can't figure out what I'm doing, or very often I'm just too lazy, which is a, a sort of writer's block I'll never recover from. <laughs> but um, Orson Scott Card, who wrote uh, Ender's Game and, and uh, uh, very, uh, uh, very Southern notable uh, works, uh, on his website, he uh, would take questions from, uh, uh, from his fans and, and, and wannabe writers um, and give very, very good advice uh, uh, not the kind of crap one can all, often get in college from teachers who talk about the art and you have to find your own vision and you have to... I mean, but, but the mechanical uh, nuts and bolts advices on how to do this uh, business. Uh, and he was addressing someone's question about, I think it was how you find your style. And um, it was a very practical answer, which is, Write down the story in the clearest way you can, 
and quit worrying about your style because when you write down your story in the clearest way you can, whatever comes of that is your writing style. Hmm. So quit worrying about that crap. <laughs> you would not take crap, but that's, that's my version. Uh, and that led into, and that was like a revelation to me. It's like, okay, kind of give me permission to quit worrying about the artistry of it, worry about the craft, and the artistry will be, be whatever comes from it. And then the other uh, uh, question that, that followed immediately on its heels, may have been from the same person, um, was what do you do about writer's block? What do you do about when you can't think of what to write or how to, how to, to describe this scene or what have you? Um, and he said, well, just don't try and fight your way through it. Skip it and go to the next scene you do know how to write, but give yourself a few notes in the uh, manuscript that, okay, this scene I'm skipping, but this, 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 and this is, is what's going to happen during this scene before you skip it and go on to the other thing. Um, but then go back and, and fill in the details of that, uh, add more notes and add more notes. Pretty soon, if you add enough uh, filling in the details of what you could write if you could write um, then you have then you have that scene you're done you, you've done it uh, you sort of just do it the way um, you know painters using that uh, uh, that glaze method I think where you just add a layer over a layer over a layer and eventually the uh, the painting uh, uh, reveals itself but uh you just keep adding layers of notes about what you would be writing if you could. Um, and then, then it turns out you've been writing that entire time. Uh, and that was a wonderful thing. And it, uh, th those two answers together uh, sort of gave me permission to quit worrying about the, the, the crap and just do the mechanics of it uh, and let the, the artistry of it uh, appear out of out of whatever you're able to produce. So, that's it. That's my answer. Okay. Um, way back when, again, we're, we'll, we'll build your chronology. What kind of led you to start, you know, breaking into either writing or, or art as, as a career, and then how did that eventually lead you into comics? Um, writing, uh, well, I, I've always drawn as a kid, so I'm sure I always wanted to be a comics artist when I was a kid. As a matter of fact, early on, um, when I was living in uh, uh, Bellevue, just outside of Seattle, uh, in a kind of low to medium middle class residential area, uh, which is now uh, part of that area where all of the, uh, the Microsoft uh, millionaires and billionaires live. So uh, apparently my old house uh, is is worth a fortune now, but that's that's beside the point. Um, <laughs> where where you have close neighbors on every side, and and Bruce Gibbon, the uh, uh, the kid uh, two doors away, who also drew, uh, came up to me one day and said, you know, my name's Bruce and your name's Bill, and I go, yes, okay, that that's a revelation, but all right. <laughs> So if we were to start drawing comics together, we could call our comic company B&B Comics, and we'd never, ever have to fight over which B was first. 
We could just, you know. And that made sense to me. It's like, well, you know what? That's the only thing that's clearly been keeping me as a little kid from starting my own comics company. Uh, so we did. We hand drew uh, B&B Comics. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, I was somewhere uh, probably eight or nine years old at this time. Um, but we drew, we drew several issues of things. His character was uh, Chameleon Man, who um, was a Spider-Man uh, clone, uh, but who could uh, change his color to fade into the scenery. My character was Mantis Man, who was a Spider-Man clone, uh, but God, I don't even know if he had any particular ability. Anyway, we did our comics. Then, because they were hand-drawn, and uh, this was even pre-copy um, uh, machine technology, uh, we would uh, uh, get uh, typewriter sheets of... Uh, um, uh, God, what did we call the... Uh, uh, the... the uh, Ink sheet that you put between sheets in a typewriter to uh, to make copies. Uh, crap, I, I'm losing the technology of my youth. <laughs> That's technology. Okay. Anyway, we would put those under our comics and and then trace over our original comic and and thereby produce a uh, a single copy uh, underneath. Um, and we quickly realized that. Uh, we could not produce these fast enough to where if we sold these, like even for a dime each, which was kind of stretching it, um, yeah, we'd, we'd make no money uh, worth the efforts of, of producing one of these. Uh, so instead we opened a, a local neighborhood library where for a nickel uh, you could check out one of our issues of something and then you have to bring it back so that we could, you know, resell it or relend it to another. Uh, that lasted for a while, and that was my first excursion into professional comic work. Um, and then, uh, God, how old are we? We're, what, 11, 12 by the time we go into uh, junior high school. Uh, in my junior high school uh, language arts class, there was an assignment um, to keep a daily journal, and we had to do it for two weeks or something like that. Uh, two weeks of of adding to what our day was like uh, every single day, uh, which bored the the pants off of me. Um, uh, which is kind of a lie. I mean, uh, I still have those terrible dreams about going to school without my pants and, and <laughs> didn't actually uh, do with it. But if I found the the uh, assignment terribly boring. Uh, so I started punching it up, um, which is a term I learned from the Dick Van Dyke show when you take a, uh, a sketch that isn't working well and, and make it funny, uh, or in this case, hopefully interesting. Uh, so when, when I decided to write about how uh, uh, my dad made me uh, clean the garage as, as my chores for the day, uh, I just added the fact that I, I found the cocoon in which the uh, uh, the alien creature that replaced my dad uh, obviously came out of, um, and just added that as if 
that was my my day and then I started sneaking around following my my alien dad thing to figure out what he was up to and uh, and by the way that was entirely ripped off from a, a short story I just read uh, that the aforementioned Bruce Given uh, called my attention to which was called the daddy thing about a kid who who finds that his dad has been secretly replaced by a pod person um, but then I got into original material because I was running out of ideas for what to do with the uh, following my alien replacement dad around to see what he's up to um, and so I started talking about how my uncle Bob who uh, was never allowed to come around during a full moon and, and it was now clear that he was a werewolf and, and that and uh, <laughs> um, I, I believe one of one of my sisters was a vampire I'm not sure I was just peppering this, this stuff in and, and making my my daily journal um, enjoyable to me and thinking I would probably get into trouble for it but what the hell uh, and then the assignment came to an end and Mrs. Matthewson said, okay, everyone, you can stop doing your uh, daily journal uh, now. We, we're moving on to other stuff, except for, for uh, little Billy Willingham, who has to continue uh, writing his, because I need to find out what happens. Uh, <laughs> and that was my first uh, indication, oh, okay, yeah, I can, uh, I can you know, keep people entertained by spinning tales. Um, uh, so it's kind of a toss-up on, on writing came first, the uh, art came first. Uh, when I finally broke into comics, uh, back in the days when you still had to break things to break in, um, I was under the impression that because of the way Marvel and DC worked, that you either had to do it as a writer or an artist. There's none of this nonsense of trying to do both. Uh, so I flipped the mental coin and, and said, okay, I, I need to draw comics more than I need to write. And, uh, and I did. I started drawing comics. I started writing again almost as a, just a defense mechanism because uh, drawing a page of comics is so hard. I mean, it's so difficult. I was getting a little tired of, of the bad scripts I was getting, thinking I could do better. And if and if I'm going to do this much work, uh, I shouldn't throw it away on bad stories. Uh, so I just started writing again, just to uh, uh, to save myself from from you know the bad writing of, of strangers. <laughs> now, cool, so I guess a few quick questions. Um, when you started uh, contributing uh, to Warp from First Comics, what was the process like? You working with Peter Gillis? Um. I, I believe uh, that the first thing I did with Peter, the first story I did with Peter was before I even met him. Uh, don't hold me to that. Uh, memory is, you know, a, a traitorous bitch. But, um, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I believe I, I didn't. It was, we were sort of put together as a team in the offices of First Comics. Uh, I was living in Grand Rapids, Michigan then, uh, starving because the small company Noble Comics that brought me out there to start actually doing finally real comics uh, went belly up uh, before anything uh, I could do for them was uh, was published. Um, so I was kind of left stranded there without enough money to move to someplace where 
people are actually doing comics and and uh, what have you. But um, first comics had begun in uh, Evanston, Illinois, uh, and that was. Uh, uh, a good one day driving trip away. You could you could drive there, um, see them in the office, and drive home uh, all in a day. A long day, but uh, it's possible. Um, so, in the company of Mike Gusevich, who founded Noble Comics and was also working looking for work with the demise of his company, uh, we would drive out there. Um, Mike was being offered uh, inking work. But he'd let me tag along, and I would, uh, every time I tag along, would show them samples. Uh, and they'd take us out to lunch, and they'd give Mike a new assignment, and they would be courteous about looking over my samples uh, and send us on our way. Uh, and Mike Gold, who was the editor-in-chief of First Comics at the time, uh, finally gave me that uh, warp story saying, we decided we... Uh, we have to give you work uh, just because uh, we're going broke buying lunch for you every time you show up with Mike Gustavich. <laughs> um, so they just handed me this, this warp backup, uh, and it was a two-parter with uh, uh, featuring Valeria the Witch Queen, or the Valeria the Insect Queen, um, and written by Peter Gillis. I'm positive I had not met Peter Gillis uh, by then, because I remember uh, uh, a phone call uh, after that. But I did the, t- the two-parter, so a, a total of 20 pages of comics, and it helped me make rent and and uh, kind of got me started on, on, okay, I can possibly do this job. Um, but the one thing I did not like about it is I wanted to do superheroes and uh, warp was a kind of science fiction uh, story in superhero drag. Uh, <laughs> and it was lots of spaceships and, and uh, you know, blaster fights and things like this. Um, that, looking back, was fine. But at, at the time, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to draw people in tight suits jumping off of buildings. Um, so... I was kind of like, okay, I get through this, and then I can go on to, to something else. Um, and that's when I got a call from Peter Gillis. I actually had to go to a pay phone to do it because I couldn't afford a, a phone. Uh, but I got a message or, or something to call him or, or what have you. Um, and we talked about it, and the first thing he says to me is, well, I wasn't going to make this next thing a science fiction thing, but I can tell how much you love drawing stuff like that. <laughs> so I rewrote it for you. Um, and uh, yeah, it took me 20 pages to get typecast. It's like, clearly this is what you want to be drawing. Um, and it wasn't. Uh, looking back, it wasn't so bad. Uh, but uh, I think Peter and I were like thrown together uh, just randomly the first time. Uh, but we ended up doing uh, uh, quite a few uh, backups of, uh, for Warp then. Uh, we created a new character together called the Outrider, um, uh, which supposedly Peter and I own, uh, although uh, with First Comics contracts that was always a, uh, a bit of a nebulous thing. Uh, 
But anyway, uh, working in, with him uh, was terrific. And, and I haven't spoken to him in years, and, and I recently rediscovered him on, on Facebook, of all places. For uh, So I, I do need to uh, reconnect. Uh, but I know I did eventually meet him in person. I cannot remember exactly where. Probably in the first comics offices at some point or in one of the uh, local conventions around that area. Now, very very early on, around the same time, so you're credited with doing some art on two issues of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Do you remember which pages you drew? Yeah, I drew um, Baron Zemo. And I, I drew two member, uh, characters who were dead. I wasn't good enough to to draw any of the then still active characters. <laughs> but uh, Joe Rubenstein, who uh, liked my work, uh, got Marvel to, to give me a couple of uh, throwaway characters. And uh, the other one was a Daredevil villain before Frank Miller came along and 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 made it more of a uh, detective noir comic. Uh, so this was a villain that still had some supernatural aspect called the Deathstalker, or uh, I believe it was the Deathstalker, uh, a guy with death, t- you know, he touches you, you die. Um, and they were very badly drawn. And uh, Joe Rubenstein, who inked them, uh, came to me later on and said, I thought you could do better than this. And... and the truth is, I, I say, Joe, I could, but I was intimidated. This was working for Marvel, so it it looks like the drawings of an intimidated young feller. How did you um, how did you get the backup in an issue of uh, Batman and the Outsiders? Uh, through uh, one of the fellows I worked with at TSR was named Lawrence Schick, um, and he was. Uh, the vice president of the creative side of things. Uh, and when we all left TSR, uh, I kind of kept in touch with Lawrence. And at some convention, I think somewhere down in Houston, uh, Mike Barr, who wrote uh, Batman and the Outsiders and various other things for DC, uh, sought me out. But sought me out only uh, to say, oh, so, uh, we have a mutual friend in Lawrence Schick. Um, and I thought that was kind of cool, and we you know, reminisce about him, and uh, I think he needed Lawrence's contact information because the the deal with Mike Barr and Lawrence Schick is apparently they're fast friends who can never um, remember how to get a hold of each other and have used me as an intermediary several times over the years. Uh, <laughs> every, every 10 years or so now, uh, I need to reconnect one of them with the other. Um, and uh, uh, so... Yeah, I, I helped him get in touch with Lawrence Schick and, and all this, and uh, and he said some, you know, throwaway little things like, "Oh, thank you very much. You're a pretty good artist. You should uh, you should do a Batman and the Outsider backup someday." And I left it as like you know one of those invitations where you say, "Come and visit someday," but uh, uh, you don't really know if they're serious. You wait until that that second. Uh, my policy is. Um, you wait for a second invitation to to even think about uh, taking him up on it, uh, which pisses me off a little bit because um, 
see now I, this would be a much better anecdote if I could remember anyone's name um jeez <laughs> Scottish new wave writer uh Grant uh, uh, uh Animal Man etc et oh Morrison thank you god what why is is my brain that I'm an old man people <laughs> let anyway Grant Morrison um, we're out to dinner at one point, uh, meaning a DC dinner or whatever, where they bring several people out. And Grant and his, and his charming wife are there, um, and we just get along wonderfully. And they explain that they just bought a castle in Scotland that they seldom get to stay at, but but anytime you you want to, you can come and stay, whether we're there or not. Uh, which I thought was a wonderful invitation. Uh, but I've never spent an evening with them since, so I've never gotten that second invitation that makes it real. <laughs> so damn them for not uh, following through. Uh, but in any case, uh, yeah, Mike Bart said, you know, do a backup with me someday. Um, and uh, I dismissed it, but then, I don't know, a week or two later, uh, it's hard to say how much time has passed, uh, he gives me a call and says... Uh, uh, are you ready to do that backup? I said, by golly, I'm ready to do that backup. Uh, and that's how it happened. Uh, almost a, a kind of just a boring little anecdote. I, I, I'm sorry I couldn't find Oh, one of them turned out to be a werewolf. I think it was Mike Barr. There, that was a better <laughs> anecdote. Now you mentioned TSR though, so I did have some few, a few, you, uh, sorry, a few listener questions that came in. This this time from uh, Dilo Temio, he asked uh, first, "How did you become involved with the Advanced Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons comic ad that appeared in Marvel and DC books? Were any additional strips planned, and are there any plans to collect these pages, or would you rather they were left in storage?" <laughs> that is that is a good comprehensive question, uh, leaving me every possible answer. I should just, you should have put A, B, or C so I could just answer A, B, or C. Uh, anyway, uh, how I became involved. Uh, I got out of the Army, uh, went directly into a job at the art department of TSR just at the time when uh, the advanced D&D was coming along to push out the, uh, the old box sets. Um, the Monster Manual, the, the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide have all come out. They were, they were just on the threshold of bringing out uh, gods, demigods, and heroes. Um, and we're starting a new Monster Manual supplement called the Fiend Fuller. That's about the time I got to TSR. Um, and during that time, uh, TSR was... Uh, they were just going great guns. They were, uh, uh, every year, their stock was doubling in price, that type of thing. Um, and uh, so one of the things they started doing was finding places to advertise. Uh, it was obvious that uh, uh, in comic books seems seemed like a place where they could find, kind of, they could direct ads to their people, uh, the kind that might be open to uh, ideas like this newfangled uh, role-playing type stuff. Um, so the ad department, which was completely separate uh, from the art department, uh, and in a different building clear across town, uh, went ahead and, and uh, hired some freelancer to create a comic booky ad 
uh, to go in the back of Marvel Comics, and um, and they ran it, and it, it was terrible. I, I uh, no no disparagement intended towards the uh, artist, but uh, it was clear he or she didn't quite uh, doing comic style art was not his forte. Um, but in the art department, Jeff D and I, who were both comics junkies, uh, saw it. Uh, Jeff D uh, instantly pronounced a fatwa on the art department, the ad department. <laughs> uh, Jeff D was a uh, a man of great passions then, probably still is. Uh, um, it's been a while since I've heard one of his tirades, but he said, "This will not stand. You cannot." You cannot enter the world of comic books with, with work like this. And uh, actually just stormed off, got in his car, drove over to the other building, and, and, and stormed into uh, the ad department and, uh, and read this poor guy, the riot act. And they had, they had a recent hire. He, he was a, a fine fellow, but uh, not, a, not a gamer. He was an ad guy. Uh, hired to like you know do real ads for for uh, TSR products, um, and it was just perplexed by this guy who came storming into his office. This was a three piece suit wearing kind of uh, go to work fellow, uh, straight out of the Mad Men, uh, the Mad Men TV series, you know. Um, and apparently Jeff just read him the Riot Act, uh, and this fellow's answer was, oh. Well, okay. Uh, you seem to know what you're doing. Would you like to do the next one? And and Jeff goes, "Oh, okay." Uh, comes back, hires uh, or or co sub hires uh, 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 Steve Sullivan from upstairs to write it because once again, artists and writers have to be separate jobs. Uh, and they did the next of the, one of those. Uh, which was much better. Um, but then Jeff, for some reason, he, he just did that one and got tired of it or something and said, okay, I, I'm tired of this. I'm moving on to something else. Uh, so poor Steve Sullivan left because he just started the storyline. Uh, comes out and says, well, you're into comics too, aren't you, Willie Ham? And I go, yeah. Well, do you want to do the next one? And I said, yeah, and that, that's how I ended up doing those uh, uh, back of the Marvel uh, books and things like that. Uh, the nice thing that came from that is that uh, I hit it off with the ad guy, um, whom you would probably believe is a little more if, uh, if I could remember his name to save my life, um, enough to where... Uh, he used his relationship with Marvel uh, to get me an interview when I quit TSR and went out there to show my uh, my pages. Um, but also, Marvel, to as a thank you for placing these ads and stuff, sent TSR two ties. These were neckties that had a, a white line, a blue necktie with a white line down it. Um, as I thank you, and and in the part of the tie that would be covered by the coat, there was Spider-Man hanging from a web line, and this was the very, very first pre 
before this whole explosion of, of superhero icona on on clothing and stuff, uh, it was such an unusual thing. Uh, one of those Gary Gygax snatched up for himself, uh, and the other one, the ad guy said, "Well, you like comics, don't you? Here, you can have this." So me and Gary Gygax got the only two uh, Marvel before anyone else got them neckties. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's a uh, there's a Playboy Club, or there was uh, out at Lake Geneva that time, uh, where we would uh, go to lunch sometimes. Uh, the the uh, TSR bought everyone a a uh, membership to the health club, which was part of the Playboy Club. Uh, but anyway, one time at lunch hour, I'm there. Uh, in the Playboy Club, having lunch with one of the other TSR people, and Gygax is at uh, another table and realizes that we're both wearing the same tie, and uh, I guess figured out then, oh, that's who ended up getting the other tie. Why? Why were you so privileged <laughs> to get the other Spider-Man tie? Um, as you may begin to guess, my my answers to, to specific questions tend to ramble off into other territory. Can you remind me what question I'm actually answering? Um, well, you, you you've exp- you've answered how did you become involved in the comic? Um, oh, okay. Were there any additional strips planned? Well, there were. You'll uh, notice that the the strips uh, ended right in the middle of a new storyline. Uh, at one point. Um, we also started doing them in the back of Epic Illustrated. Uh, and that time, I decided to write it myself. Uh, and there, I think, two strips were done uh, and then ended in the middle of, of the storyline. And uh, Steve was still writing the ones in the comics, and they ended in the middle of the storyline because uh, abruptly, um, the ad department uh, or someone else in the uh, the business side of the company uh, decided, you know, let's just try something else. Um, uh, I wish they would have given us, you know, just one more strip to attempt to wrap up the story. But, mm. you know, it, it, it was never intended to be uh, a comic story uh, other than as a clever way to advertise the games. Uh, they were ads. Um, so yeah, they just abruptly stopped. Do you know? Do you know that? The, well, do you know, or do you think there will ever be any plans to collect those pages? Or again, would oh, you... I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, I'm not sure who has the art. You know, uh, back then, uh, TSR never returned art. Uh, I couldn't begin to tell you whatever happened to the the uh, the strips. Now, uh, from the same person, Dilo Temio, the question is, uh, how long did you work with TSR? Did you provide any input into the modules, or was the work merely dictated to? Uh, Yes and no. Um, I worked one year on staff and another year freelance doing those uh, back of the uh, comic book ads. Um, What happens is is the modules would uh, come down to us from upstairs, uh, the illustrations being the last thing uh, to uh, be done before the, the whole thing was shipped back to the other uh, building for, you know, publication, printing, and all that. The illustrations really were, uh, back then, almost an afterthought. 
the, the covers would have designated places for illustrations. The inside first page would have a uh, designated place for illustrations. But other than that, it was strictly a uh, function of um, the paste-up, which is a term that no longer uh, applies in, in publishing, was a point at which you would spit out these long lines of text uh, and then literally paste them into the, the shapes they would, uh, they would occupy on a page for printing. Uh, and sometimes there were just holes that would occur. Well, whenever a hole would occur, that's when the art department would find something uh, to illustrate and plug into that hole. So it literally was determined by the size of the hole, and usually they were pretty small. Um, very seldom did the people upstairs who were pacing up what would be this, uh, uh, this module, this adventure pack, uh, very seldom would they decide, you know, this is a place where a very good picture could go. Why don't we leave room specifically for it? Um, I think that sense changed. I mean, I, I think they've uh, the, the state of, of publishing and gaming, they realize that art plays a real role to it. So then, no, uh, art was just an almost an afterthought. And uh, the way we'd work is uh, whenever one of us in the art department finished an assignment, um, on any given project, if we were the last one to uh, 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 to grab, you know, something that needed to be done on the previous project, the art director David would say, "Okay, look at whatever's next," and uh, and start figuring out what kind of art should go into the next thing. Um, so let's say I I finish my last assignment first, and I'd go and see that such and such a module is coming up, and I'd read through it and figure out what art needs would be needed, where maps... You know, they would not leave room for art, but they would always leave room for maps. Um, maps were important. Um, but anyway, you go through the module and figure out what kind of art would be needed, uh, and then go back to Dave and say, okay, here's what we need. We need a cover, we need an inside something or other, and then we need uh, this many spot illustrations. Uh, so in that sense, whoever... And it was strictly a, uh, whoever was next in the lineup when when there was another uh, thing to do, um, it was almost random. Uh, but whoever got that, that read through the module to see what kind of art we needed, uh, then there was a little bit of, of uh, creative input uh, because uh, we would uh, uh, make a, uh, a list of, of uh, potential art ideas. Uh, for this, uh, you know, here's something that would be interesting for the cover. Here's something that would be good in this spot, etc. Uh, other than that, uh, then as other artists became available, they would just go to that list, pick the something. Okay, I guess I could draw this and get to work. The covers and the inside uh, front piece illustration were assigned by Dave Sutherland. Uh, other than that, you just picked whatever hole needed filling. Uh, and said, I can, I can draw this. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's how it worked. Um, do you find time to play RPGs still? Sometimes. Uh, right now I live out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> I've got the, the time uh, to do it now, uh, but I'm in the middle of nowhere, and, and 
And uh, every friend that would be interested in that, uh, one by one, moved away to a better home uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, so I don't really have that much opportunity. That said, I do go to Gary Khan every year when I can now. And Gary Khan is the, uh, the convention that grew out of uh, Gary Gygax's funeral where instead of a, a formal wake after the, uh, the graveside service, uh, they rented the old hall where, uh, where uh, Gen Con first started uh, in Lake Geneva. Uh, it started in the uh, Veterans Memorial Hall, which is just this uh, kind of shack in the middle of town. Um, and they uh, set up games and played games all day as kind of a tribute to the guy. Uh, and I thought that was... Uh, rather uh, touching uh, way to, uh, to celebrate the life of a fellow like that. Uh, but that date got good to them. They, they uh, decided the next year, you know, we should do it again. And it grew into uh, what is now a four-day convention that resembles the old uh, Gen Cons much more than Gen Con does anymore. Gen Con's gotten huge, as, as well it should, more power to them. Um, but uh, uh, but Gary Con, which takes place in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, just like the old Gen Cons, um, and now it takes place out at that Playboy Club I mentioned that uh, since went under, so now it's called something else. Uh, but it's a four-day uh, TSR people getting back together, uh, gaming, whatever. I, I get to go to that every year. That's my uh, uh, indulgence and, and connection back to the gaming field. Uh each time. At some point, I'll make the effort to, to find the nearest hobby shops and stuff and put up a sign and start a game of something. Uh, but that, that requires me actually putting some preparation into my life, uh, <laughs> which uh, a good deal of my psyche is, is against ever doing. I have a question from a um, uh, board member known as uh, Visual Fiction, which is, uh, what is your preferred alignment when, play, when role-playing in RPGs? alignment wow that's a good question um well all right my apology uh to the visual washamandiga whatever his name is that answered this question but this this reminds me of another long uh anecdote that i'm going to inflict on you okay uh, anyway um when we played D and when i first played D, it was in the army uh, in Germany uh, on a uh, nuclear uh, containment and maintenance base uh, out somewhere where no one was allowed to know this existed uh, or where it was. And uh, I was a military police and I was a guard. Uh, and our job was to guard the fence line and, and sit in the towers of this, these places where these bunkers existed where uh, nuke warheads that were in need of regular maintenance or repair would be taken to for their maintenance and repair and then, and then put back in the field. Uh, our job was to, to guard this area, plus uh, do convoys where we would get a whole bunch of guns and trucks and uh, go to the uh, air base and, and grab one of these nukes coming in for repair and bring them back to our base or take them from our base back to the air base to, uh, to go back to where they belong. Um, 
the thing about this is uh, when we did these convoys, it was very busy, uh, but those were few and far between. The rest of the time, we were stuck in these towers looking at, at uh, empty fields and forests and watching the grass grow. And no one would ever approach this because uh, this X area, which is what we call it, was deep in the side of another military facility that was also protected uh, by the uh, the Free Polish, the last existing Polish regiment after uh, after World War II, uh, the, a group of Polish military that got out uh, ahead of Soviet occupation. So there's a bit of history for you. Um, but no one made it past the Poles, uh, so we never saw it. You know, no one ever tried to assault the X area. Um, needless to say, that was a boring job, and we would be out there for 12 hours a day uh, during our uh, on-ship rotation with nothing to do. We had a radio in each tower for official communications, but also to keep us from going uh, uh, bug crazy, pardon my French, <laughs> uh, we had a landline, a telephone system that, that connected all the towers uh, with the front room, which was the, the place in this facility that ran everything. Uh, I turned through a fluke. I turned out to be the communications guy in the front room uh, because no one else out at the time. It's supposed to be a job for a, a sergeant, uh, E6 or above, um, which I was not. But uh, none of them could pass the test. So I ended up with that job. And so I kept all the towers communicating and talking with each other. The things they could not do in those towers is they weren't allowed to fall asleep, although they did from time to time. They weren't allowed to take books out there to read because that takes your eyes off of the area you're supposed to be looking at. But when we started playing Dungeons and Dragons, it turned out that the uh, the bosses realized, so all they have to do is sit there in those towers and, and, and answer questions on the phone and decide what, what, uh, what their character does, and you can run it from... And, and, and no one is is not looking at his clear zone. <laughs> and we said, yes, that's exactly what happens. And we explained how this stuff is modified by di- uh, adjudicated by dice rolls. And they said, well, they can't they can't be bringing dice out there and rolling them because that takes their attention off of you know monitoring their their area. So we worked out that the dice rolling would all occur in the front room, and all these sergeants that had different jobs there in that front room. Uh, that thought this this D and D stuff was just ridiculous uh, would nevertheless uh, get into it because it turned out that everyone that was out on the uh, tower line would have to pick one of the sergeants to do his dice rolling for him, <laughs> and these sergeants started campaigning. You know, I roll more twenties than 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 you know, Icky Sergeant Samson. You should you should switch over to me and stuff. Anyway, they all got into it. <laughs> and so I ran a D&D game from the front room uh, for 12 hours a day, uh, eight days in a row, and then you get a four-day break. Uh, and then, of course, during that four-day break, every one of us who played D&D in the, uh, uh, in the company uh, would hole up in someone's room and, uh, and play D&D the entire time, round the, round the clock. We had several... Dungeon Masters who would take turns running it so that, uh, and people would just bring their sleeping bags, camp out in the room, <clears throat> and be woken up when their character needed to do something. So we played just 24 hour D&D for a year. 
uh, needless to say, a lot of our characters got pretty high level, and we were reading all these things in the Dungeon uh, Dragon magazine, uh, Gary Gygax's uh, uh, table-thumping editorials about how he's been running the game longer than anyone, and none of his characters are above seventh level at the time. I believe it was seventh level. Uh, so anyone who's above that <coughs> is cheating or is a Monty Hall dungeon master who's giving too much stuff and, and experience away. We were definitely not. We, we, uh, we followed the rules. We were not uh, Monty Hall dungeon masters. Uh, we could not figure out how we had uh, 20th level characters um, when we were following all the rules and yet he's, he's only gotten up to 7th level. It never occurred to us that they might not be playing 24 hours a day um, <laughs> for an entire year. Uh, so when I got out of the Army and went to work for TSR, I, I applied for an artist uh, position and, and got it um, through Dragon Magazine. It was just a posted thing. Um, everyone that's a new hiree at the time gets 30 minutes with Gygax to uh, kind of be welcome to the company and ask any questions and all that. So I had to ask about this. Uh, I had to ask, like, we followed all the rules and we did this and all that, and, and, and I swear we got 20th level characters, and, and you say, and, and by this time, a year passed, and his, his characters are only 8th level, and he goes, no, but can't happen. And, uh, but he asked some follow-up questions, and he begins to realize how much we've been playing. Uh, and that's when I found out that back in the real world, people played one night a week for a couple of hours that night, and that's it. And then they went on and had lives. Um, uh, and he said to me, it's like, you know, you guys may have played more Dungeons & Dragons than any other beings in the universe, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, did I answer a question in there? I don't think so. Uh, okay, what was the question again? The question was, what is your preferred alignment? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in a year of playing that much, you play every alignment. Uh, that was the reason for my anecdote. You play every alignment. Uh, so I had lots of experience. I played bad guys. I played good guys. Um, uh, I think in the long run, uh, I like playing good characters. I'm, I'm a sucker for real heroes in my movies and all that kind of stuff. Uh so probably chaotic good is my preferred alignment because it's good, but but no one but you, your own code, is deciding what's the good in any situation. Uh, the whole lawful good where it's like there's a set of rules that, that someone's decided and you have to adhere to it like a robot didn't quite make it for me. So that would, that would probably be, if I had to pick one to stay with forever, uh, that would probably be it. I'm sorry I went in, in such a long digression to answer your question. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, I'm sure the listeners are enjoying it. Um, so wh how did what, what led to the creation of Elementals? Um, that was an accident. I was trying to break into comics. Uh, I, uh, during my year as an uh, uh, artist at TSR, I kept putting together sample pages of Marvel characters. Uh, I wanted to work for Marvel. I wanted to draw Marvel superheroes. 
uh, and I put together six sample pages because that's what uh, anything I could find out said is the right amount. And I would send them off on a regular basis to Marvel saying, here, I'm ready. You just let me know when it's time and I will quit this job and, and come and draw comics. And uh, John Romita Sr. had just become the art director of Marvel at the time. Uh, so what little I knew about how publications worked was based on TSR. It's like the art director is the guy. He's the main artist. He's the guy that hires artists. Um, in Marvel, the art director was actually in charge of the art production, or the the, the bullpen who uh, would do lettering and paste up and the and corrections and things like that. Um, I did not realize that individual editors of lines of books would be the one to hire the artists that actually draw the comics. Uh, but I sent them to him, and John Romita Sr., whom I will always be grateful to, um, treated it seriously he didn't he didn't just shuffle it all shovel it off and say okay this is like for an editor he uh he gave me a call at work one time and and said okay this is what's good about your pages this is what's bad and and this is the guy that's been in the business forever so he knew he, he knew his stuff and he gave me some good critiques and said so you know the next time you do samples here's what you need to do and here's what you need to not do uh, and I took it as gospel, and, and uh, uh, in the next week, I redid my sample pages with those corrections in mind and, and sent them off again. And he called me up and, and said, this is, this is amazing. You were the first person who's ever just turned around his samples based on that. And, and that's when he explained to me that he can't give me work. Uh, he helped me make a better artist, but he, he can't, can't give me work. Um, so when I finally quit TSR, I went to uh, New York because uh, I did take some uh, vacation time to go out there, showed my stuff around. Uh, one of the editors, whom I will not name, uh, escorted me around and bragged about uh, how that editor could get me work uh, at some point. And that's what inspired me to go back to TSR and quit because I was just offered work in Marvel. Uh, so I quit. I gathered up my stuff. I moved to Long Island, New York. Uh, went into the Marvel offices as soon as I, uh, just about as soon as I touched down um, with my samples and contacted that editor and said, hey, I'm ready to work. And that editor did not remember me uh, from Adam. <laughs> uh, but brushed me off saying, well, so you live in New York now? Well, you can, you know, all I can do is show you around to other editors anyway, and you can do that yourself now that you're here. Uh, and dismissed me, and I realized that, oh, I didn't have a job waiting for me at Marvel Comics. Uh, it was just an editor talking big. Uh, so I went to my little apartment uh, in uh, Long Island, uh, way, way out in Long Island, which is as close as I could afford to live, uh, and sulked for a bit. And uh, at the same time, um, other smaller publishers... and. Weirdly enough, at the time, I didn't even try DC uh, because hmm. someone at Marvel said, "Is like, yes, uh, you should go show your stuff to DC, but don't show them Marvel characters uh, because that will immediately prejudice them against you. Uh, so I had to go back and do like an, an entirely new set of uh, uh, sample pages with DC characters, uh, and that seemed like an awful lot of work for 
another brush off. Um, I had already imagined that DC being exactly the same character as Marvel, it would be another, another lots of nice sounding promises, but ultimately a brush off. Um, all of this taking place in my head, mind you. Uh, so I sold for a bit, and uh, in one of my excursions into New York to Forbidden Planet Comics, I started just collecting, like, okay, any publisher who is not Marvel and DC, um, of those publishers, uh, Noble Comics existed. They, they had uh, the Justice Machine. Um, Capital Comics had just started with Nexus. Uh, Pacific Comics was starting up. Uh, and maybe one or two others. Um, First Comics had uh, not yet started. Uh, They were in the process of of putting their company together. Uh, But I decided uh, I was going to send out sample pages to every one of these companies. Uh, And I thought to myself, I cannot do separate sample pages for every single company. Therefore, I will do one set of generic samples um, and they can all just hopefully interpret it like well if he can draw this he can draw our guys mm. uh, those generic samples were the elementals see I didn't forget your question this time <laughs> um, I just made up a um, uh, a superhero team called the elementals uh, probably because I came out of TSR and elementals were a thing uh, and also, there was a uh, interview with uh, uh, John Byrne at the time, who was really tearing it up with. Uh, uh, he just left X Men, just started Fantastic Four at this time, uh, and was like the uh, the prince of the city uh, where comic art was concerned. And in an interview, he was talking about the Fantastic Four, about what's really behind him, and he said. In one sense, they are like an elemental team. I mean, Reed Richards is water because he can stretch, and Sue is air because she's got the invisible force field. And anyway, earth and fire. Uh, well, that's interesting, uh, but maybe you should, like, you know, take the metaphor aspect out of it and just go whole hog four heroes based on the four elements. So that's what I did. I created the elemental strictly as um, sample pages. Did six pages of these guys running around bonking villains on the head, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, to show each and every one of these publishers that I knew how to draw. Then I went and got uh, copies made, put packages together, sent them out, and waited for uh, for all these publishers to either to ignore me or to send me the the polite um, good luck. We don't have anything for you at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, instead. Two days after I sent them out, which means this was regular mail, uh, FedEx didn't exist at this time. Um, so this guy had to have received them in the, the regular mail, opened them, and probably called me from before he left the post office. Uh, but Mike Gustavich at Noble Comics called me and says, this is great, come work for us. And I said, that's great, I'll be out there in a day. I bought a bus ticket. Uh, bid my uh, uh, roommate, who was Jeff D. from from TSR, goodbye, and and, uh, headed out to uh, um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, to finally, finally do comics. Uh, Get off the bus, uh, Mike picks me up, Uh, we have have lunch and a walk in the park to discuss things, and I ask him, like, what, uh, what, 
books to, uh, are you going to have me uh, start on? And he was doing the Justice Machine, and he started a new thing called Cobalt Blue, and, and uh, there may have been one other thing, I forget. Uh, but he looked at me like I'm an idiot, which was well-deserved, uh, <laughs> I would like to say, on record. He said, what do you mean, what book? And I go, yeah, what, what book would you like me to, uh, to do? And he goes, well, the book you pitched to us, these elementals, we're doing that. And that's when I realized that I had not just sent out generic samples, that I was actually pitching uh, a book. Um, and so I wisely said, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, of course we're doing that. <laughs> of course I knew that. What I meant was, did you want me to start on anything else first? But okay, yeah, we'll just dive right into that. Uh, I think I fooled him. Uh, <laughs> but th anyway, that's how I found out I was doing a book called The Elementals. Um, and then it was that one that I started to uh, to draw and write, and uh, then Noble Comics went under, and then Texas Comics picked up the whole line that Noble Comics was doing, um, and it turns out they didn't really have any money either. They just somehow thought the money would come to them. So they got actually a Justice Machine annual with the elementals in it out, and then they went broke. Uh, but by that time, the whole first issue of, of the elementals standalone series had been drawn, uh, and then uh, Kamiko in Philadelphia snatched it up and made a deal. Um, but that's how I came to accidentally uh, create a book called The Elementals. Now, that, a question that kind of comes from that, uh, this is from Hyperthor, uh, asking, do you own the reprint rights to The Elementals? No. No, I do not. In the breakup of Kamiko, um, that was one of the properties that uh, fell victim to um, it was supposed to be a new partner in, in the existing Kamiko named Andrew Rev, but it turned out that secretly that they weren't being uh, quite upfront with those of us that are actually doing the books, that he wasn't a new partner. He was buying them out for pennies on the dollar because uh, the Kamiko partners made a bunch of bad business deals. Um, anyway, he got uh, the elementals with it through a whole long process that I won't go into. Uh, I got a little money for it, but not much. Um, and, and anyway, he owns the Elementals, uh, although that's in doubt now in the sense that he's done nothing to protect them. Um, I would not be surprised if the ability to do Elementals was in the public domain, but that does not mean the reprint rights. Uh, the reprint rights are with whoever, you know, had them, which is him. Uh, and that will be his forever. So so I would never look for uh, the old Elementals issues to be collected or reprinted in any way. I'm sorry to say. Okay, well, it definitely actually answers a question I was about to ask. So uh, you, you got ahead of me there. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not all good. Um, a question again from Dilo Temio. Um, this is a little bit of a longer one. Uh, he states, uh, The Elementals was astonishingly progressive for the time, particularly in regard to gender roles. Morningstar was one of the strongest female characters in the 80s. Shapeshifter was unapologetically omnisexual, but at the time appeared lesbian, and Saker's army was entirely women. Why, and what interests you in regards to the topic? Um, well, it wasn't politics. Uh progressive or otherwise. Uh, in every case where the Elementals was concerned, I was trying to feel my way as a writer. I wanted to do good, interesting superhero stories 
uh, that to not uh, repeat the mistakes I saw in other superhero stories. Uh, in every case, it was a question asked to myself and answered by myself. What would be interesting here? Um, I wanted Saker to be an interesting villain because uh, even then, in my formative days of, of comics, um, the the worth of a superhero really was dependent on how how worthy the their their big adversary was. Um, so I, I worked to make Saker as, as interesting a villain as possible. Pre-internet um, and the whole list about the uh, rules, if you're gonna be a, a, an ultimate overlord or whatever, and all the things to avoid, uh, I kind of had a, a similar list in my head of, you know, this guy really is a uh, mad genius um, here's some things he would avoid. Uh, I have no idea why he would pick an all-female army other than it seemed interesting um, visually. It's like he's, a, he's the guy in charge and his entire army of fanatical, loyal uh, people are, are female, with the exception of uh, the Destroyers, his supervillain team. Uh, it just seemed interesting, and I thought it would look good on the page. Um, what was the other part of the question? Uh, shapeshifter about um, oh. her sexuality. Yeah, shapeshifter. Well, when I decided that shapeshifter existed before humans did, uh, and before sexes did, I mean, started as a uh, single cell organism. Um, I, you know, she, let's call her that, started. As something that was uh, uh, beyond sexual designation. Uh, so why wouldn't, in, in the basic core of the character, why wouldn't that continue? Uh, so it's not that, you know, she's a lesbian or she goes both ways or whatever like that. It's it's inappropriate to call her she to begin with. It's uh, it's it. It's, you know, that, that uh, creature. Um, and because... She has the ability to create any kind of creature she can imagine. Uh, yeah, there's, there's just no restraints, is there? No. Uh, another question from the same uh, um, listener. Uh, whatever happened to the Shadow Spear? As a reader, it became it seemed to become a superfluous or forgotten element. Did you lose interest in it as a plot device? No. Uh, if, if Carefully reread it. I know I can't really send readers back to carefully reread the old issues especially since they're, they're damned hard to find now. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shadow Spear was released at the end of the first arc. It was a we win the day, but we didn't realize that by doing that, we'd release this thing into the world that causes all sorts of problems. The all sorts of problems that the elementals ran into in the years that followed uh, most of those were created by the fact that that Shadow Spear was still running around uh, chaotically messing with with things and sometimes randomly creating uh, various monsters and such uh, that plagued them. Uh, others learned how to tap into it. If you'll remember, the, the superhero team, the Rapture, uh, created by the, uh, uh, the crazy-as-a-bedbug evangelist, um, 
he realized that uh, that if you kill people in bizarre ways, sometimes they came back with powers. Uh, and that was all the Shadow Spears actions um, behind it all. Uh, so without understanding what mechanism was at work, uh, this uh, evangelist guy was able to take advantage of it. Uh, and then near the end, when... Uh, when Kamiko died, and therefore the uh, Elemental series died with it shortly after, um, the big war that was shaping up uh, was entirely uh, because the Shadow Sphere had been, you know, uh, inarticulately messing with things, causing this big buildup of forces. Uh, so it was always there. Uh, we never forgot it. It was definitely a background thing. Uh, it was the background energy that fueled all the bizarre goings-on. Um, I did not want to have them take on the shadow sphere itself because, for one thing, uh, at least with my skill level at the time, I couldn't think of a, a non-boring way to do it. But the other thing is if they clean up that problem, they're done. Uh, yeah. So it was it was seldom at the forefront. It was always there. Uh, we never did quite forget it. Okay. Um, same listener asks, uh, has Ratman reconsidered his interest in the music of the Alan Parsons Project? Yeah, probably about the same time I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, probably. Who knows? Uh, and then a follow-up was, uh, did, did Saker own any Steely Dan or Vangelis albums? <laughs> I'm almost certain the answer is yes. Um, around this time, you uh, you produced a few memorable GL stories. Um, did you have an affinity for the concept, or was your involvement purely based on an invitation by DC? A uh, little bit of uh, A, a little bit of B. Um, Green Lantern was my favorite uh, DC character uh, from an early age. I just I just loved him. Probably. I think I really liked the character pre-Neil uh, Adams, but uh, when Neil Adams and, and uh, uh, Denny O'Neill kind of revamped the character, uh, I, was, I was hooked. I was hooked forever. Um, so even though certain things, since the, the work I did back then for DC was catch as catch can, uh, I'd have things offered to me uh, and I tend to, uh, sometimes I had to say no because I just didn't have the time. Uh, sometimes I would say no to something because I didn't have any affinity for whatever's offered. But uh, uh, even if I didn't have the time, whenever some editor would call up and, and say, do you have time to do a, a Green Lantern issue, I would say yes regardless. Okay. Uh, moving moving a little bit forward in the chronology, um how did uh, you start working on Coventry, or how did that come about? Um, I left Kamiko because I couldn't work with the, the guy who bought out Kamiko. I had no real income. Uh, I was uh, in grave danger of having to get a real job. Uh, on one of my trips, at about that time, I was living a vagabond life. Uh, I had a beat-up old van. 
uh, with all my worldly possessions in it, I would uh, take off on the road and, and literally in a few cases flip a coin when I got to a, a, a pass, a, you know, a, a T intersection or what have you in, in the road and decide which way to go. Uh, but one of my wanderings brought me uh, back up to the TSR area where friend Steve Sullivan still lived and uh, was just going to drop in and visit him for a day or two. While I was there, he told me about uh, this new Eros Comics thing, and Steve Sullivan was very much into erotic comics, and uh, asked me if I would do covers for his new Eros Comics series because they said... Uh, they would publish his book, but his art was not strong enough for cover, so we'd need to find a cover artist. And Steve said, well, I, my friend Bill just came to visit, and he's the Elementals guy. And, and they said, yeah, if he's willing to do covers, we'll do it. So I got on the phone with them, agreed to some kind of cover rate. Um, and just before the phone call ended, um, uh, the guy, God, what was, who was the first Aeros editor? I forget. Anyway... Yeah, so when are you going to do an Eros comic? Um, since I was getting no work then, uh, I just kind of said, oh, I, I guess I'll start now. <laughs> uh, and it did a book called Ironwood, which lasted for 11 issues. Um, learned two lessons from that. Well, probably more than that, but I learned that... Uh, uh, doing an erotic comic is interesting for maybe an issue or two. Uh, by the third issue, I was bored, silly. Uh, but I stupidly decided to, uh, uh, I stupidly plotted out an actual storyline that was going to take 11 issues to complete. Uh, so I was stuck doing it for those uh, additional nine issues, or ten issues, uh, eight issues, anyway. Um, so the, the other lesson was, you know, Make sure you love an idea before you uh, you commit yourself to more than a year uh, of doing it. Uh, and the other lesson I learned is: is it possible to um, uh, to tell a, uh, a a dirty story uh, with an actual good story behind it? And the answer is no, uh, because uh, the implied contract with a um, erotic. Uh, series is that there's your your membership is almost male i mean i certainly there's a a, a, a few uh uh bold professor challenger-esque types and 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 amongst females that were interested in, in that kind of stuff but mostly it's a you know porno was a male audience uh, so the implied contract is that if you do an issue of something in uh in adult fiction you and you provide at least one potential boner per per issue, and I got tired of doing that, and I, I had to I had to work that in somehow to every every idiotic issue of that series, um, and that depressed the, the hell out of me because that that was the engine that drove everything else. Uh, everything else was was secondary to it uh, because that's the overriding thing you have to do. Uh, my conclusion is, I mean, maybe other better people. Uh, better talents than I could could do that and still and still get a good story out of it, but I don't think it's possible. Anyway, so I got to the end of Ironwood finally, breathed a sigh of relief, and uh, uh, I thought I'd probably, 
by then enough time had passed that, uh, um, you know, people at Marvel and DC and whomever uh, might be uh, willing to take my calls again. Um, I'd kind of burned a lot of bridges because there was a lot of stuff that I was going to do and didn't finish uh, just because it bored me and it was terrible. Um, but I thought I would go back to that, and instead the Fantagraphics people said, well, do you want to do anything else with us? And and uh, I said, well, not an Eros book, but <laughs> I have this, uh, this idea for kind of a, a supernatural adventure comic in mind. Would you be interested in that? Uh, and, and they were, so, uh, so I did it. Um, that lasted three issues before um, the uh, distributor wars occurred, which caused the, uh, the demise of many distributors except for Diamond. This hit Fantagraphics hard because some of those distributors died owing them lots and lots of money. Uh, they... Uh, had to really, really scramble to uh, make ends meet. Uh, so payment uh, came uh, few and far between in a few occasions. Uh, and it turns out I couldn't afford to wait uh, because what little they could afford to pay up front uh, was barely keeping me going. Uh, so the, the uh, challenge was either I could keep doing Coventry but get a day job in order to keep food on the table, roof over the head, etc., or I could go back in and do more mainstream comics. Uh, and the idea by then of actually having to get a day job was was uh, terrifying to me uh, because I really had no skills. I, I have no ability to contribute to society in any meaningful way. Um, all I know how to do now is spin stories and tell outrageous lies. Uh, so I reluctantly ended Coventry and, and went back to more mainstream stuff. Now, is that around the time that you start working on Pantheon? Uh, yes. Yes, I guess so. so now, um, I ended up back in Austin with Bill Williams, who uh, had started his own small company and, and said, can you do anything with the company? And uh, uh, Pantheon, we had Strange Heroes, a few other things. But yeah, that, that'll be about that time. Now, uh, listener, uh, so we previously had some questions from Faust33, and I would come back to him, because he wanted to know if there's any hope of the second Pantheon trade being released or a reprint collection of Coventry. Uh, I don't know about a reprint collection of Coventry. Um, I kind of feel that maybe it should be reprinted, perhaps only if I can bring it to a close, but unfortunately I plan this vast sweeping uh, epic. Um, it would take a dozen issues to bring it to any kind of a close, and I don't think I have a dozen issues of, of hand-drawn comics in me in any kind of timely fashion, so I doubt it. Uh, the second trade, it seems to me it was, but maybe not. Uh, I know that all the issues of Pantheon are available uh in comics through Comicsology, um, my advice at the time when we were collecting Pantheon was to do it in one huge volume. And Bill thought it would be better. Bill Williams, the publisher, thought it'd be better as two volumes. Um, but he expected the first to pay for the second. Uh, the unfortunate problem with that is that when 
half of something comes out, a whole bunch of readers, including myself, are of the mind, well, I'll buy the first half when I know there's going to be a second half. So mm. the first the first uh, volume didn't pay for the second, and I believe that's why it never got done. Um, he could have done it, I think, at the time as, as the entire thing. Plus, it would be a big, nice, meaty um, uh, thing that would occupy a lot of shelf space, uh, space and get people's attention. Um, yeah, uh, but I don't know. I, I know that Pantheon is available in Comixology, though. Okay. Uh, listener Jester59388 asks, would you ever take another stab at Proposition Player, say for Image or IDW? Uh, here's the problem with Proposition Player. It got a lot of good attention and critical response from everyone that read it. Uh, it sold in the dozens. I mean, it really, really did sell sucky, sucky numbers. So much so that even though we were going to do an ongoing series, uh, about issue three, uh, DC knew it was going to have to cancel it, um, and they were uh, uh, they went out on a limb with me uh, to at least get it to six issues where I could bring it into some kind of close. Um, you'll notice right about at the end of issue four, which would have been the one done and end by the time they decided it had to be canceled, that suddenly things worked at a terribly fast pace to get it to the ending. Uh, that was an originally planned going to be a slow leisurely pace to get it to that same ending, but they, they gave me those six issues to wrap it up, uh, and it got wrapped up at least to, to some extent. Um, in my mind, the really cool stuff uh, was only going to begin happening uh, after the end of the current story, where now that Joey is in charge of the most popular afterlife of, of all uh, his problems really begin um, what's it like being a god in charge of an afterlife when really you're just kind of some schmuck from Vegas uh, that said uh, I don't know I don't I don't anticipate I mean DC wouldn't be interested because it really 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 didn't sell and even though we collected it uh, which was them taken another roll of the dice and I think it maybe sold well enough just to justify putting the collection together uh, and then we put the entire collection in my big omnibus book of uh, uh, bad ideas or something like that. Anyway in none of its forms did it really sell enough to I think justify its existence uh, and unfortunately as nice and clever as stories can be, um, we we do have to have sales uh, to keep doing it. So uh, my answer is I suspect not. Okay. Now, I guess chronologically that, that kind of brings us uh, to Fables. How did you pitch that? Uh, once again, it was almost an accident. Not entirely this time. Uh, but so much of my career was done accidentally. I was living in Vermont. I was getting some work from D.C. Uh, we did Proposition Player. I uh, did the Thessaliad. Uh, a few other done-in-ones. The, uh, uh, the Sandman uh, one-shots, such and such. Just enough to keep a roof over my head. Uh, but the things I uh, pitched weren't doing very well. Uh, long... Well, 
I don't, I don't know how much I want to go. I pitched a lot of story ideas similar to things that came out and, and did very well, uh, but they didn't like him from me, um, so they, they were turned down. Um, when I came up with Fables, and this is something I've been noodling with for a long time, there are literally dozens of different origins to the series Fables. Um, but I knew that this is another one that uh, DC Vertigo just wouldn't be interested in. They wanted uh, urban, dark, pouty teenagers with piercings in their lips and stuff like that, which is fine. Uh, not really my cup of tea, though. Uh, I wanted hard-bitten adventure fantasy, and I don't think that was their, their cup of tea. So I wasn't going to pitch it to them. Uh, but Shelley Bond, uh, the uh, number two editor at uh, Vertigo at the time, um, I'd known her since the Kamiko uh, days. She still has affection to, for working for me, uh, working with me. Um, so every once in a while, she'd just call me up out of the blue with ideas. And at one point, she called me up uh, and... Don't hold me to this, but I think her, her current idea was two sassy sister private detectives. That was, uh, and, and I was working on the phone with her to see if there's something there that it, she wanted me to come up with a pitch for two sassy female uh, private detectives. Um, the problem I had with it is um, I thought all right, you could probably get a, a series out of this. Uh, but uh, Shelley and others in the Marvel and DC hegemony would often solicit ideas from freelancers to put a proposal together. Uh, but they'd do it in bulk. You know, it's like, let's have everyone do proposals for a new Thor series. Or let's have everyone do proposals for this. And, and Shelley was part of that tribe. Uh, where she would just blithely, in my opinion, sometimes uh, ask for proposals based on ideas that she had, um, knowing that there wasn't a lot of chance of any of this getting through. Uh, and I was getting a little upset by that time of just like how much of my time wasted because there really were a, a, a pile of dead proposal corpses on the floor <laughs> between us by that time. Uh, so I gave some thought. We were talking it over, um, and and I probably said that I'd, I'd see if there, this was on a Friday. I probably said I'd see if, if there's anything I could come up with as a as a hook for this. Uh, and then I said, which is something I said, seldom said to Shelley, because we would have these long, rambling, hours-long conversations. I said, Shelley, I I hate to cut you off, but I gotta go. I've got this thing I need to work on. Uh, Shelly is, is a territorial creature. Her radar went up instantly. She goes, what are you working on? I mean, because she knew I wasn't working on anything for her right now because that's what we were discussing. And I said, well, there's this pitch that I'm doing. Don't worry, it's, it's for another company because uh, this would not be a Vertigo book. Well, she insisted that I give her the broad strokes. <laughs> so I told her about Fables. Uh, spoke for about 10 minutes. Uh, then I was really wanting to go because I was really eager. Um, I wanted this 
this pitch to go out to various companies uh, quickly, uh, probably with an eye towards the bank account, which was getting pretty thin then. Uh, but Shelley listened to this and said, okay, here's, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're not going to pitch that to other companies. You're going to pitch it to me, and we're going to accept that. And you're going to have that pitch on my desk by Monday. <laughs> um, I said, okay. You know, uh, she would she had uh, helped resurrect my career enough times where she deserved a shot if she insisted. I really, the, the only reason I didn't want to pitch it to Vertigo is I didn't think it was their kind of book. Uh, but I said, okay. And I had it on her desk by Monday, which was a good thing. And it was a good thing that by then, the internet and email and such and stuff like, like that had grown to the point where I was able to send it in electronically uh, because um, they got the pitch. Uh, she passed it around, and both uh, Karen Berger had to, to uh, sign off on it, uh, Paul Levitz, uh, both, uh, were, were there three, and Jeanette Kahn was still uh, the... Uh, president of uh, D.C. at that time. She was already kind of halfway out the door. Uh, Paul Levis was taking over uh, like in a week or so. Uh, but she was still part of the process. Uh, what no one knew at the time is that Jeanette Kahn was going out the door to Hollywood to start her own movie production company. Um, she read this, decided to herself, she admitted later, that it would make a great movie. Uh, so she told DC they were accepting this just so that it, it would exist uh, for uh, for her evil schemes later on. <laughs> uh, so they called me back like in a couple of days and accepted it, within a week at least, which was outrageously fast for DC. And it's good they did because um, right after they accepted it, and I realized that's it, I've got a career again at least for a little while, I, I still assumed there'd be a few issues that would get critical acclaim, but no sales, and then I'd be on to the next thing. Um, but right after they accepted it, uh, I saw on TV the first uh, trailer for the very first Shrek film, which in my mind covered so much of the same area as Fables that I was heartbroken. I said, oh, someone got there first. Um, so I called, I think it was another Monday call, uh, to D.C., uh, spoke to, to Jeanette, and I think uh, Shelley was on the line, too, and maybe Karen. Um, but I basically said, look, I just saw the Shrek thing. They got there first. I don't blame you at all. If You know, I'll withdraw the uh, proposal uh, because, well, you know, someone beat us to it. Uh, and I thought they would take me up on it. It's like, well, yeah, someone got there first. It would be silly to proceed now. Uh, but instead, they laughed and laughed at me like an idiot uh, because they said, it doesn't matter. That it's, for one thing, Fables is not going to come out anything like Shrek, even though it's using many of the same characters, according to the trailer. Um, you know, quit being stupid, one of them actually. I think Jeanette said that uh, kindly. <laughs> She's a doll, but quit being stupid and get to work is what I was told and, and did. Um, so that's how Fables started. Uh, once again, kind of an accident. How detailed was that original pitch, uh, and how much of it was translated to what we ended up getting? 
detailed. Uh, in the original, I, I had uh, several different storylines worked out. And part of that was, uh, I think Karen heard from Shelley like my original talk on the phone about how this was coming in. Because I got some feedback, like, well, we should do it as a six-issue miniseries, because uh, she said, I don't think we can get more than one story out of this. So the pitch, part of it was to, and it may have been like a secondary thing I sent in after the original one, I'm not sure. But it was to prove that there were more than one story to be getting out of it. So I had several story arcs planned out. The Animal Farm, the the uh, the Rose Red Murder Mystery, a um, couple of the others. I'd have to look I had probably four good story arcs outlined. Uh, the only changes they uh, made was Karen was worried that this would not be seen as an urban thing. If we started with Animal Farm first, which I think may have been the first thing, um, it would have been too much like elves and unicorns in the forest for her taste. <laughs> she requested that the murder mystery in Manhattan... Uh, be moved to the front of the, the queue, which was fine because uh, uh, they could have occurred in almost any order. Uh, but that's really the only change they made in it. It was very detailed, though. Um, I had all the main characters worked out and and they even visually designed them myself because uh, my thought was is that many different artists would be working on this, which turned out to be the case, but we didn't know at the time that Bucky would insist on being the fabled artist. Uh, thank God for that. Um, but uh, uh, I wanted the characters well established so that uh, uh, so that different artists weren't design, uh, drawing them different ways. And our original thing was we we're going to have several arcs worked on at the same time so we'd never run out of issues. Um, so yeah, very detailed. Which, um, did you know, I guess, from, from the outset, who the adversary was going to be, or did you have to work up to that in your mind? Uh, yes and no, and then yes again. <laughs> can, uh, can you elaborate? Originally, the adversary was going to be Peter Pan, uh, with Tinkerbell as his muscle. Uh, the reason being that as a kid, my parents dragged me to uh, the Disney Peter Pan movie, uh, probably when it came out, uh, and everyone was like going off about how delightful this was, and all I took from it was there's this thing that comes to your house and takes kids away from their loving parents. I was scared to death of Peter Pan. Uh, I we we had a we were living in Belgium at the time, and I was on the kind of the in the basement bedroom, one of these you know half basement, but there's a little bit of of the, the basement floor that sticks up above so you can throw a, a little window in near the top of the room kind of thing. That was my bedroom. And because I shared it with my brother, my bed was right under the window that was at ground level outside. And uh, many a night, I'd lay awake watching that goddamn window to, uh, to make sure that no one was going to come snatch me away in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> It, it really traumatized me uh, in a good way. I think I think uh, uh, I think the things that scared me are the ones that that you know helped shape me as a human being. But anyway, um, so 
I carried that with me for years. I, I told you there were many, many origins to uh, fables, and that was that was one of them. Uh, Peter Pan was going to be the villain, um, and uh, that was the case while I wrote probably the first three or four issues of the first arc. Uh, DC has a pretty strong legal department. They made me produce a list of every single character I could ever imagine uh, being in the book, including Peter Pan. Uh, And then they researched each one to make sure that they were indeed in the public domain. Uh, Peter Pan was in the public domain in the United States at the time, so I was right. But it was not in public domain in the UK at the time, so they were right uh, because of the uh, special parliamentary uh, decision to keep Peter Pan in uh, ownership longer than than the normal span uh, because all the proceeds uh, um, went to the uh, something-something children's hospital. They didn't want the hospital to suddenly not have an income, uh, which I think was understandable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they they came back to me and said, "Look, it can't be. You can't have Peter Pan because he's still under copyright in the UK, and uh, we're going to sell books there. So change it up." Um, at that time plans were already secretly underfoot with uh, Jeanette Kahn and the Jim Henson uh, productions people in Hollywood to uh, to get Fables the movie going. So I remember being on the phone with uh, Jeanette and um, Lisa Henson, who was head of Jim Henson Pictures, uh, as we were just going through ideas about who the adversary could be if we couldn't use Peter Pan. And they were throwing up possibilities, but something they said uh, sparked an idea in my head. Um, anyway, uh, I hung up on that. I said, look, we'll continue this later because some, something sparked an idea. Uh, I hung up, reread the uh, original Pinocchio story. I decided Geppetto would be a wonderful adversary as the puppet master, secretly controlling things behind the scenes. Um, so I switched to that. Now, this was before the first issue, you know, got printed. I mean, we were in production uh, by then. Uh, But uh, so the new adversary was locked in uh, before Fables officially started in the sense that it was uh, published and available to anyone. Uh, But, uh, yeah, originally it was going to be Peter Pan. Did any? Did you find it that anyone guessed that it was Geppetto? Like, I mean, there was a lot of speculation at the time as who's the adversary was. Did anyone get it right? Oh sure. As soon as uh, the uh, um, the uh, the three brothers, uh, the wooden soldier brothers, showed up, uh, people started guessing that they were Pinocchio esque creatures, and uh, especially since at one point. Uh, Jack says they're Pinocchios, um, so that that would mean the adversary uh, was the villain. And and I specifically threw in the line. Uh, I think I gave it to Pinocchio. I'm not sure. I'd have to reread it. But uh, one of them says something like, "Boo!" Amongst the many people the adversary has under his thumb must be my father, Geppetto. So yeah, I guess it was a Pinocchio line. <laughs> uh, just just to throw them off the scent. And that worked with some people. Uh, not everyone. 
Were there any characters that you found difficult to write? And, and conversely, who is the most fun to write uh, of the Fables cast? Uh, that changes a lot. Uh, I'm going to sound like a, like a Ponzi auteur. <laughs> I'd say that, that whoever I was writing in the moment was obviously the favorite character to write because, you know, you, you have to uh, fold yourself within the depths of the character, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, Bigby was always fun and easy to write because I knew without a doubt who he was. Um, there are some characters that are so locked in uh, that... You know, you could create any situation and ask yourself, what would the character do? And what, what would that character do in this situation? And, and with Big B, of course, I'd have the answer. Uh, Snow White, similar. Um, there were uh, delightful characters to write in Flycatcher and Boy Blue, only because they were intended to be background characters. Boy Blue existed only to give Snow White someone to talk to in the business office, since in the beginning I envisioned many scenes taking place in the business office with just Snow White pondering her future or pondering the dilemma they're currently in. And and as you know, you can't have a character talk to themselves and, and really be a believable character. Therefore, just give her an assistant, an excuse to explain things to a, a Robin to her Batman. <laughs> And this is why we're doing this, old chum. Um, that was his entire reason for existence. But then, when I started asking myself, as uh, I often do with any character, uh, okay, all we knew was he wore blue and he blew a horn cause, because of the nursery rhyme. Well, is he any good with the horn? And I answered, well, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, he's been around for hundreds and maybe thousands of years, he's probably gotten good. But what does he like to play? Well, he's boy blue, so the blues. And then I asked myself, well, why? Why does someone like this, this white and privileged, look at, <laughs> look at me, I'm a progressive, um, have any right to play the blues? So I had to give him a tragic backstory, and that made the character interesting. And, and uh, suddenly he was a fully fleshed character. Uh, Flycatcher are very similar. Uh, Flycatcher existed only to be a background joke, and then when the March of the Wooden Soldiers took place, he was going to be one of the casualties. But by then, Mark Buckingham was the regular artist on the series. Uh, uh, because I, I know because of your podcast with him, he's already explained how that came about. And he really did just... Um, he was being more polite the way he explained it to you. <laughs> he did call Shelley and I up and basically say, I'm your new regular artist now. Um, and, and we kind of like, oh, okay. And that was that. So he, you know, uh, being the regular artist, uh, carries so much of the story on his shoulders. Uh, he asked me, please, please don't kill Flycatcher. I think he knew I was planning on killing Flycatcher or, or sensed the bloodlust in, in my heart. Um, <laughs> But he, he begged me not to because it was his favorite character to draw. Uh, and I agreed because you don't, you don't piss off that great an artist uh, lightly. I agreed to spare him. But then as soon as I agreed to spare him, I had to justify continuing to keep him as a character. So he had to be 
given depth. And that turned out to be one of the uh, one of the funnest uh, arcs to write, the, the flycatcher as King Arthur character. Uh, mostly because uh, it was the arc was 12 issues long, I think. Uh, and the end result came out very, very close to how I pictured it. And usually arcs, like, they sort of resemble what I hope they'll be at the beginning. But this one was so close to, uh, to what I wanted it to be uh, from front to end. Uh, so, yeah, that was a, a delight uh, to write. The most difficult one to write was the... Uh, uh, Cubs and Toyland arc, uh, only because at the beginning uh, we knew we'd be killing off Dare, mm. and uh, neither Bucky nor I wanted to do it. Uh, the trick to uh, killing a character uh, to provoke uh, an emotional involvement from your reader is to is to first make that character beloved. Uh, to the readers, so uh, so in the Cubs and Toyland, we we hadn't really looked at the uh, uh, the uh, wolf cubs as individuals uh, much before that, uh, but during the Cubs and Toyland arc, they really did become individuals. Ambrose, the bookish one, uh, kind of became his own character before that, but other, the others weren't differentiated. Um, but we set out with malice aforethought to make Dare beloved to the readers and then to kill him. But right up to that last panel where he shoves the pool cue through his heart, uh, we were uh, asking ourselves, Bucky and I, and we had many phone calls uh, back and forth, uh, do we dare do this? Uh, pun not intended or maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Um, Neither of us wanted to. Both of us knew we needed to to make the story work. We had a we had an out all the way through. I, I'm not sure I can remember what it was, but it was solid enough to okay. He spared at the end, and we still have a arc. Uh, and and uh, you know it's like those movies where where someone has his hand on the button of of their their uh, secondary bad choice. Uh, right up until the clock starts ticking away, it stops ticking, and and uh, thank God we didn't have to push that button. We were ready to push the button on the alternate story line right up till that panel, uh, and didn't. And uh, uh, to this day, uh, have some readers say that we uh, we made the wrong choice. That it's uh, um, having having dare kill himself like that is some kind of form of child abuse. Uh, and thank God, not because I promote child abuse, but but if the uh, if the story affects readers on on that level to where they they make what I consider an unfounded assertion, like I mean, it really means that we got to them. Uh, so I'm happy with how that turned out. But it was it was a tough one to write. Mm-hmm. Um, another listener question was that uh, you had stated previously in the comics journal that fables was a metaphor for the Israel-Palestinian conflict. How did working on fables affect your thoughts on the issue? Was the series a helpful or productive channel for considering the topic? All right. Um, first of all, I, I said that about fables uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, fables was really a metaphor for uh, American immigration. The fact that uh, you can you can come to this country and start over uh, during the height of the 
the Ellis Island, uh, the, uh, what do you call a reverse diaspora where, where people are flooding in. Um, this was the land of second chances uh, for so many people that, that had to leave their country under the, the worst possible circumstances. Uh, that's why, of all the places that I considered setting Fabletown, it had to be Manhattan. You know, New York was the place you came to to start over. Uh, you can see that throughout, I mean, a hundred different worlds, but you come to this one uh, for refuge and a second chance. Uh, that's what the main underlying theme of Fables was. The Israeli thing was only to the extent of uh, a small community against, set in the midst of a vast, overpowering group of nations bent on their destruction, but they're just too feisty to give up and roll over. Uh, and that metaphor is valid. Uh, calling special attention to it uh, was just to piss off the readers that uh, that reflexively get upset any time you say anything nice about Israel. Um, <laughs> and and there's, there's part of me that will never not be that kind of cranky, like, you know, screw you idiots and your stupid ideas. Uh, so, yeah, that was, that was just to poke the bear. Okay. Uh, to cause people to, to, to get all high dutchy and uh, how dare you. <laughs> With Fables, what led you to decide to wrap up the series at issue 150, and when did you make that decision? Uh, when we were plotting the, uh, the Snow White and Rose Red... Uh, final, like either they end up enemies or 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 beloved sisters. It was time to address that. Um, somewhere in the middle of that, I realized, and then when I spoke to to Mark Buckingham, he agreed that that the best way to do this is to end it after because that's that's the last real thing that uh, that had always been a, a dangling plot thread that needed to be resolved. Which isn't to say there aren't more stories that could have been told with fables, but that just seemed a good... When when they settled their differences, uh, then it was really over. Uh, so we ended it. Uh, I was a little frustrated. There's part of me that wanted to... Because uh, Dave Sim got 300 issues of service, which was a, a, a Herculean task for the same creative team to do 300 issues of anything never been done before um and i was going to go 301 just just to beat them <laughs> um but that in and itself wasn't a motivation to keep going if if uh if it was clear there was a, a very good perhaps even perfect if i can pat myself on the back and i shouldn't uh place to say the end uh, and even though it's against my nature, I decided to give uh, at least her and uh, Bigby and uh, the kids a happy ending too. Uh, what happened to to uh, to me over the years that I turned into such a softy? <laughs> well, I mean, you killed a lot of people in the middle. <laughs> you killed a lot of people in the middle. That is true. <laughs> um, was uh, the way the, the so that the fact that you kind of closed it on that kind of button? Was that always how you kind of origin, originally envisioned ending the book, with kind of closing that knot? The first time I was going to end the book was um, when 
the Fable Town finally won the war against the adversary, and Geppetto was forced to come in and stop find, sign the Fable Town Compact. The nature of that final story was such that we could always push it ahead of us and keep telling stories before that occurred. So it was always a way to close it off, but not yet. The problem with that is the closing is that if you sit on a story for too long, it gets stale in your mind. It starts to it starts to become not a delight to where I can't wait till I get to tell that story, but a chore of, oh, God, someday I'm going to have to tell that story that's all wooden and and and, uh, and and corrupted in my in my head. So I talked to Bucky about this and said, you know, I kind of want to tell this final story now and then figure out a way to keep going. Because I'm not ready to end the series yet, but... So that was the first time the uh, series was going to end. Um, the wedding of uh, Bigby and, and Snow was another possibility for, you know, that's a good way to end it. Uh, but we still wanted to go. Uh, so there'd been there'd been a, a few potential. This could be the ending of Fables before we finally did. Hmm. Um, how can you describe the uh, the relationship that you and and Bucky had working on the book together? Well, it's pretty good. I mean, like any couple that's been together for thirteen years, we had our squabbles and fights, um, but never never big, never very long. Um, Mark Buckingham uh, was introduced to me uh, the possibility of working with him was introduced by Shelley when I did when I wrote the Merv Pumpkinhead Agent of Dream one shot and Shelley ran a list of uh, uh, names by me and she uh, which she got to Mark Buckingham and I knew I knew that name I didn't know why I knew that name. And then I remembered reading an article in uh, the Collins Journal. And the title of the article was called The Best Artist Nobody Knows. Um, and it's all about how Mark, Mark Buckingham was a, uh, um, a chameleon in the sense that he could, uh, I mean, he had this wonderful art style all his own. But he could also... Uh, adjust his art style to imitate anybody, and did. And uh, Mark himself, during his podcast, told you the story about how uh, um, he had to take over mid-series uh, from Chris Vaccaro, uh and nobody noticed, because he was able to... Uh, he was inking Chris, but he took over pencil and ink duties, uh, and but so exactly followed... Uh, because of style that not a single person noticed that the uh, that Chris Piccolo had left the series. And I thought that was an amazing uh, accomplishment. And, and apparently so did some writer at Panagraphics because they, they talked about that and various other things and showed how Mark Buckingham could just do it all. Uh, I'd never spoken to him, uh, never heard of him outside of... Uh, uh, seeing that death series and, and reading that article, but that article came to mind. So right in the middle of uh, Shelley's just running through this list of potential artists for uh, Merv Pumpkinhead, I started shouting at her, he's the greatest artist nobody knows. And of course, I sounded like a crazy man to Shelley, but she uh, <laughs> she puts up a lot uh, with a lot of nonsense for me, so that was fine. Uh, so we agreed that Mark would be offered 
the book. As a matter of fact, I think I insisted that she hang up on me and call him immediately, just in case some other uh, story comes, you know, some other job comes to him. Uh, she had to lock him in. Uh, so Mark and I did the uh, Merv Pumpkinhead thing together, and he was just marvelous. Um, so in the early Fables days, uh, when we were putting our list of artists together, and this was still under the idea that a different artist would handle every arc, uh, Mark was on the list right away uh, to do one of the arcs. We didn't know then that he was uh, he was going to pull the rug out from under us and, and say, you know, I get to do all of them except for, you know, the, the short stories that exist purely to give me time to uh, uh, to get to the next long one. But uh, uh, so I worked with Mark for four years on Fables. I talked to him on the phone, never met him. Uh, throughout the almost a year working on Murph Pumpkinhead and the first four years of Fables, uh, never met the fellow because I lived here, he lived over in England, uh, and assumed we never would. But one year at San Diego, uh, for the San Diego show, Shelley had mentioned uh, that we were going to be doing a big Fables push. Uh, and I asked if there's any way to get Mark Buckingham over. Uh, and he didn't want to come. And he may, he may uh, tell you differently. <laughs> uh, he resisted coming over because it's a long way to go. And flying is, is uh, from England. Uh, in stages all the way to uh, the American West Coast is a uh, long and exhausting process. And I agree with them. It is. It's terrible. Um, but we, I can't remember how we talked him into coming, but he did. And we met, and we hit it off. Uh, and it turns out that he was so beloved at that San Diego show and, and sold every single piece of artwork he brought with him. Uh, <laughs> And would have continued to sell more. He was he was uh, in his in his typical not really whining way, but really whining. Uh, he was complaining that he didn't bring enough stuff. If it had, if it had known how much stuff he would sell, um, but apparently he made a killing of it at the San Diego show, and good for him because suddenly he was more than willing to do San Diego's, and then he does the Boston show regularly. Um, or not the uh, Baltimore show regularly. Um, so he does, he is willing to come now because his avaricious heart knows that he can sell his work here. <laughs> um, uh, and you can tell him I said that. But uh, uh, but we, we mostly got along for the entire uh, uh, 14 years of our association, uh, only 10 of which was actually knowing each other as a human being. I still met, never met his wife. I still presume, uh, because someone so pretty can't can't really love a uh, uh, even even a delightful uh, English cartoonist. Uh, I believe that Irma is a actress he hires to try and convince the world that he is indeed happily married. Uh, <laughs> and now they probably bought some kid on the black market. I was going to say continue the fabrication. Um, <laughs> No, I was going to meet her a couple of times, and in both cases, she works in the uh, the British television industry, or maybe the Spanish, too. Anyway, uh, big shows or big uh, production opportunities came up just before each time, uh, so I still never met her. Um, and until I do, I, I'm going to persist that, uh, that he hires her to pretend to be his wife. <laughs> 
Well, we're going to let you go shortly because we've already you already have blessed us with over two hours of your time. But I'll oh, be am rem- I? Okay, I'm I, sorry. I, I I prattle on. No, no, I'm I'm enjoying every moment of it. I just I'd be remiss if I didn't ask at least about what it was like to work on Robin and also have Stephanie Brown take over as Robin during your tenure. Oh, that's a good question. Um, Robin was mostly delightful. The, I, I made one mistake. When uh, they called me out of the blue and said, would you like to take over writing Robin? I said, yeah, sure. I didn't think about it. It's like, it's a superhero book and, and all that. And between the time that the, uh, uh, the editor offered me the book and I accepted it and, and then our next phone call, I started to think, well, what, uh, what would I do with the character? I mean, Robin's been around forever. What new stuff is there to do? Because it was a fairly new kid in the uh, in the role, I decided you know what I would the story I would really like to tell is the story of a guy a, uh, a new guy learning the superhero business from the best guy in the business. That's an interesting story. Uh, but I made two mistakes about that. One, uh, I hadn't kept up with Robin his own series for a long time. So the, the first thing I said when I uh, said to Michael, the editor, yeah, is send me, you know, the latest issues so I can catch up, which he agreed to do. When it was announced that I was taking over Robin, uh, I admitted that I hadn't been reading Robin. So uh, in, in an interview uh, with Newsarama or, or Comic Research, one of those guys, so I said, since I wasn't, you know, I said yes, but since I hadn't been keeping up with Robin, uh, I had to uh, read the entire 50 or so issues of his his uh, solo book uh, all at once to, uh, uh, to you know, a, a uh, full immersion course in Robin. Well, the, whoever was doing the article reprinted exactly what I said. But whoever was out there reading it got as far as the I hadn't been reading Robin and apparently stopped reading the interview then because they skipped the part about, so I, you know, caught up. Uh, Because all sorts of, uh, and this is when uh, forums and chat groups and stuff like that were all the rage and and DC even hosted one on their own site. and every one of the forums was alive with the the uh, the scandal <laughs> that someone was taking over Robin, who made a point of mentioning he doesn't even bother to read Robin. Um, and that was a story for a long time. It just irked me. And it was all sorts of you know people that don't even sign their real name. It's like it was, they were non-people. Um, and that story never totally went away. The number of times I can say, but. Read the rest of the sentence. It says, I caught up. I, I really did. <laughs> um, within that week, that's all I read, and, and, and I probably knew more about Robin than anyone because it was all, like, immediate and immersive and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that was a mistake, opening my yap to, to people whose, whose main joy in life is to find something to be offended at. Um, and the other thing was to make it clear that I was telling the story of a guy learning the superhero business from Batman. Because everyone said, Tim Drake, he came into the job already ready for it. He doesn't need to be trained by anyone. He already knows. (laughs) And that flummoxed me because 
no one. You know, in in the real life, and I know you can't you can't compare superhero stories to the real life, but but you should anchor it in real life every, every any chance you can. But in real life, the the more skilled you are, you know, the like the special forces guys, they don't say, "Oh, we've achieved this level." of expertise therefore we can stop training because we're special forces guys it's like no the higher you are on that scale the more you work the better athletes work out more than the ones who, who don't and even you know they don't say oh, i've achieved this level i can slip off uh but somehow in, in people's minds i didn't translate into superhero stories uh, as a matter of fact one time uh, a robin story was rejected uh, by the editor, because the opening scene showed them rehearsing for a rescue operation that they were going to do for some kidnapped kid in the you know building, and being Bruce Wayne, he built an entire mock-up of the building they would be just to rehearse exactly how they were going to go in, so that they the quickest amount of time uh, to get to the uh, kid before she's you know killed by the kidnappers. And uh, Michael, the editor, said, you can't do that. I go, why not? Because Batman doesn't need to train. He's <laughs> Batman. I go, that's ridiculous. And he goes, you can have Batman running Robin through it. I guess I would accept that. But you can't have Batman, you know, just like, let's run it again. Let's run it again. Let's, you know, uh, I thought that was nonsense, but I had to bite that particular bullet. Um <laughs> So, with those two caveats, mostly my run on Robin was fun. I enjoyed doing it. Uh, a careful rereading of, of my issues will show that that I kept the as much of the uh, new kid learning the superhero business as I could. But um, I knew going into the series that spoiler was doomed. That was one of the things they said right up. Is like. Here's the thing you got to know. We're going to kill off Spoiler, and it's going to be pretty soon. They were playing in a big uh, crossover that ended up being named War Games. Um, and I said, okay. I, at the time, you'll recall, I didn't know Spoiler from anyone. And then when I got to like her, having caught up on all the books, it was too late. Um, so Spoiler was doomed, and it was going to happen soon. And then, uh, because of that, well, all right. One of the ongoing long storylines, I was going to have Tim's dad slowly find out that he's Robin because he was doing that behind his dad's back. And I had this very intricate, intelligent way that his dad finally puts all the pieces together that his son is Robin. But then the word came down from on high that because of identity crisis or something like that, Every group of books had to throw up one sacrifice so that there could be bodies for this big event in someone else's camp. And they decided that Tim's dad was going to die. And I go, you can't take Tim's dad. I'm doing this. I'm seeding this grand, grand arc of a story. And they go, oh, you can still do that. Just do it in the next four issues. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. So... The careful, the storyline, the careful storyline of, of his dad slowly putting together that his kid is, is Robin, uh, I fell back on the old cliche of him finding the secret door in his son's 
closet that shows his Robin costume. I hated doing it, but but I had a page in which to do the discovery to have any chance of of moving the story through to its conclusion before they took the the guy away. Um, so I had to do that, and people howled, and, and deservedly so this time. The old find the closet, the hidden door in the closet thing is, is a terrible cliche that should have died long ago. Uh, but his dad dies, Tim quits the business for a while, which was all going to happen in my long-range plans, too. Uh, but we were just getting into the big crossover. As a matter of fact, I was in New York while we were planning the big crossover, where I said to Michael, the editor, uh, like, well, you know, I have these, I think four or five issues, I forget how long, uh, spoiler was Robin, uh, where there's no Robin, because we're telling the story of Tim quitting. He goes, yeah. I go, can we make spoiler Robin for a while before she dies? And he says, no. <laughs> I go, why? Because we cannot kill another Robin because people hate us for killing the previous one. And uh, I didn't turn loose of it. Uh, up at, uh, across the street of the Texas Chili Factory for dinner that night, uh, Bob Shrek was the main bat editor. I went over Michael's head and... and uh, Asked Bob, and he says, that's a great idea, do that. But just make sure she's no longer Robin before we kill her, because we can't kill another Robin. So that was the only restriction. And, and Michael was like, hey, look, if Bob's fine, I'm fine. Uh, make her Robin. And the idea was, she's going to die soon, so let's, you know, as a character, her wish was to be a legitimate superhero, and Batman was always saying, no, 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 no. So as characters, like, well, let's, you know, make a wish foundation. Her, what's her biggest wish? to be legitimate, to, to be Batman approved. Let's make her Robin for a little while uh, before we kill her and make sure I get her out of the costume before we she dies. Uh, and, uh, and we did it and it took off. The sales took a big bump as soon as uh, we made spoiler Robin. So I came to DC and said, can we save her because we should ride this, this thing for a while. I said, nope, she's doomed. Uh, so it, it, it was a brief, brief thing. Uh, and boy, did I get a lot of gruff for, uh, for killing spoiler, even though it was not my idea. Um, and of course, the readers being smarter than us, uh, uh, us idiot uh, uh, creators and publishers and stuff, uh, they didn't buy in the, well, as long as she was officially out of the costume, a Robin didn't die. They're, they're smarter than that, and rightfully so. Uh, they knew a, another Robin had died, but she was never going to be mourned as a dead Robin because all DC is like, we cannot have another another monument to a dead Robin inside the Batcave. Uh, but the readers fixated on that, said, why do we not, you know, is this an anti-woman thing? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, because uh, 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 I'm, I'm basically a, uh, a cranky, uh, refuse Nick uh, in many aspects of my uh, uh, for panels and stuff I would take all the blame uh, because I was having fun with it to have all these women yell at me uh, for being anti-woman for uh, for doing that to spoiler uh, and all I really wanted was uh, 
uh, you know, I knew she was doomed from the beginning, so let's give her one moment of what she wanted. Uh, I did not know it was going to be a big event. It turned out to uh, uh, to be very important to people, and that's that's uh, reassuring. Uh, it was certainly the biggest event of my run on Robin. Um, and uh, in hindsight, I'd probably probably still do it. <laughs> Um, what was it when you were writing, you know, the chapters of War Games? You got to actually write the Batman title. What was that like to, you know, be the the writer for a few issues on, you know, the marquee Batman book? It was intimidating, uh, but also uh, that thing was so tightly plotted that a lot of the pressure was taken off, uh, which was good. Um, I love the fact that I can look back and say, yeah, I wrote Batman, the official Batman not just the one in Robin. Although, I think the the bat, the version of Batman in Robin, if you want to look at what I would do with the character long term, uh, that's that's where you should look. I, I thought that version, who is not a tortured creature of the night and not, not a psycho trying to, uh, using Batman as, as therapy to work out his, his issues. Uh, that was, that's my version. But, uh, yeah, it was nice. Uh, the way the, the War Games crossover worked, though, uh, there was a certain team of writers, and really the the schedule dictated who would be writing what, because, uh, um, you know, you couldn't have one writer having to write all of the crossover titles in one month, uh, because that's too much. So we, we basically just, whose turn is it now to, to write this, and whose turn is it now to write this, and so... You know, randomly, the uh, Batman uh, just fell to me a couple of times, and that was that was terrific. It was uh, fun to write. There was a few things they wouldn't let me do um, when uh, when it was time to rescue the kids in uh, Alamo High uh, that were being held hostage. Uh, I did a lot of research into how a rescue operation like that really works, and they wouldn't let me. Uh, let uh, have Batman act the way they do because the thing with a hostage situation is when you come in you need to move the hostages out of harm's way immediately you don't coddle them instead you yell at them and, and in a threatening way because you need them you know their fear reaction is already dialed up so you don't take the time to like you know unfear them and then create trust and da 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 you make use of of the fear setting that they're already in. And, you know, uh, uh, that's why in a wonderful show, uh, The Unit, uh, the first time you see uh, Dennis Haysbert's character, um, after he frees the hostages from the plane, the first thing he says is, get off my airplane, and he threatens them, and, and they run away scared from him because that got him off the airplane. Anyway, I was not allowed to clear the uh, high school like that by having Batman do the get off my airplane role, um, which is too bad, but... But uh, you know, we don't we don't get everything we want when we're playing with someone else's toys. No. Now, in two thousand five, you also got to write one of the four Countdown to Infinite Crisis miniseries. How did that come about? Because that's you know a, a big event is being led up to. There's these four kind of cornerstone series that are leading up to it. How did you get given the keys to this to uh, the Day of Vengeance? They called me up one day and said I was doing it. <laughs> Uh, Jeff Johns, who was one of the architects of that, uh, says, uh, we got the four things. You seem to be the guy for the uh, supernatural thing. 
do you want to do it? Uh, he didn't actually say it. He says, uh, we figured you'd do it. I go, okay, I'm doing it. Oh, yeah. and, and I wanted to pitch a new superhero team, so I said, can I use it to uh, form the superhero team idea I've got? And uh, um, Dan DiDio, uh was a little dubious at first. He goes, nah, I don't know about that. You know, we're, we're not, we're not uh, having a lot of success starting new teams. I go, well, this is an idea I had for Vertigo, but they didn't like it uh, because it's a superhero team and they hate teams there. And Dan says, well, we love teams here, so okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, they just called me and told me. No. no no, fun anecdotal story there. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, now, well, let's talk about Shadow Pack for a minute then. So what was it? So sure. that, was, that was your baby from, from the beginning? Uh, yes. What was I mean, it about? characters, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was what was it about? The, like, how did you choose the characters you ended up using in Shadow Pact? I mean, people really like the people who read the book really responded to it and enjoyed you know this eclectic group. But how did you kind of pull them together? Um, in each case, I simply looked at uh, DC magic based characters, and I asked myself the question: Is like, is there something cool I can think to do with this character? Uh, and when I answered yes, that got them put in the yes pile. Um, when I was done going, and I was going through like, you know, the DC handbook of character or something like that, uh, I found out I had too many people in the yes pile, so I just winnered them down to, uh, uh, the next thing is not, uh, the next question I asked is not, can I think of something to do with this character, but can I think of ways in which this character can interact interestingly with this? And winnered it down to the core group, and then uh, Dio called me up and threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing by saying, is there any way you can put Detective Chimp in the group? <laughs> and my first reaction was, no, that's stupid. And then that part of me that just loves, you know, kind of screwing with the system says, oh, my God, that's stupid. It's gloriously stupid. So I said, yes, Dan, of course. No problem. And, uh, of course, he turned out to be the uh, most interesting character in the group for me. So that was, uh, it wasn't imposed. He was he was really just asking about favor. He's just like, is there any way to use this character that I want used somewhere? Um, but that's how it was it was done. The, uh, the, the, uh, the bones of their reason for uh, forming a team uh, which was put in the Day of Vengeance series, uh, was with me all along. I've been playing with the idea of a team called Shadow Pact uh, for many years. As a matter of fact, a decade earlier, more than a decade earlier, when I saw the handwriting on the wall that Elementals might not last long because Kamiko might not last long, they were making a lot of iffy decisions. Uh, I pitched a team called Shadow Pact to DC uh, with all new characters. And that pitch was going well. It looked like they were going to do it. The problem is, is DC then was in this age where they would never finally pull the trigger and say, get started. They would take meetings, and they would take meetings to plan meetings for later meetings <laughs> to discuss the possibility of doing something. I, I, I kept taking the train from Philadelphia to New York to have yet another shadow-packed meeting 
And I just got so tired. And I finally, you know how I said earlier about if you sit on stories too long, they grow stale. Mm-hmm. I finally decided, look, I'm no longer interested in these characters because for a year we'd just done nothing but take meetings to talk about the possibility of doing this, which almost immediately you said, what are we going to do? Why don't we just do it? Anyway, so that died, and, and the new Shadow Pact was where I took DC characters and plugged them into those kind of available slots for uh, uh, enough time had passed to where the idea got fresh to me again. Uh, but the idea of a superhero team forming in a bar because everyone is too drunk to, uh, uh, to look like a coward in front of each other uh, appealed to me long ago. And I'm, I'm glad, if nothing else, I'm glad I got to do that. But it's like, it, it, it's sort of the equivalent of a drunken bar bet uh, to form a team. And that's an origin to be proud of. Uh, the one addendum, uh, I really do need to run along here. The one addendum to that is uh, Shadow Pack did not sell well enough uh, to keep going, which is too bad because uh, I met Patton Oswald at the San Diego show, and apparently it was one of his favorite uh, series at the time. And so I, um, I never admitted it to him. Uh, if he hears this, I'm just telling you, Pat, and I blatantly used you. It's like when they were going to cancel Shadow Pact, and they weren't even going to let me finish it because they wanted to move me over to this other thing. Um, but it was it was doomed. And I said, but doesn't the fact that it's Pat and Oswald's favorite book, he said it was one of his favorite books. <laughs> I lied and just took out the one of. I said, doesn't the fact that it was Pat, it's Pat and Oswald's favorite book buy us a little more time? And they said, who? <laughs> he was not quite as, you know, those of us that were really paying attention knew that he was like the guy then. And he's since been that. Now everyone knows him. But he wasn't quite there yet at the time. Uh, I, I want to play this kind of, you know, alternate universe thing where if I was fighting for Shadow Pack's existence right now and I use that, I'll bet the answer would be different. Oh, well, if it's Patton, do you think we could get him to write an issue? I was going to say, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, Pat, the, the title of this whole thing is Patton Oswald Could Not Save My Career. <laughs> anyway. All right, well, we're, we're going to let you go. The last thing I want to ask is, uh, is there, what's, what's coming up next? What, where can we get some our fill of Bill Willingham next? Okay, the, the next thing that you're going to see is uh, The Greatest Adventure from Dynamite, which is all of the Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, characters, including Tarzan, John Carter, uh, uh, Carson of Venus, in a massive crossover, mirroring the, uh, the Golden Fleece Voyage, the Jason and the Argonauts. Um, it's called The Greatest Adventure, uh, and, you know, what if the crew of the Argo was all the... the best heroes from the Edgar Rice Burroughs universe with Tarzan as their captain. Uh, and that's a uh, seven-issue series, maybe eight. We're not sure. Um, they're, they're allowing me a little time in case, you know, it sprawls. Um, the next thing after that is going to be announced at C2E2 uh, this year. It's a big thing. Um, hopefully it's going to be a massive thing. Uh, especially for those that uh, missed the demise of Fables. Uh, and I cannot tell you anything about it. Uh, that, that's fair. <laughs> but 
It's the only thing I'm announcing the existence of at C2E2. So that will be the thing. Okay, excellent. Well, Bill, thank you so much again. We've uh, taken up a lot of your time today, but I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk about your career, uh, your influences, your inspirations, as well as looking at certain uh, projects you've worked on. So thank you so much. You you are so welcome, and thank you for having me. My favorite thing is to be had. Um, <laughs> so so uh, thanks, and, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Of course. Thank you so much. All right. Well, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>